0: A year Valley Who Review
1: Good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome 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 to the yesteryear ballyhoo review many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside so hurry and get your seats tonight the ballyhoo is going to play some insider baseball as we head back to the year 1952 and we delve into the oft neglected pocket of Vincent Benelli's work in straight melodrama with what MGM describes as bold drama with the bad and the beautiful so see see the show stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. They really
2: are, yourself as you really are, until you can do this to your father's picture.
0: What goes on in the private lives of the famous, the notorious?
1: You will share the laughter and the tears of talented people who stop at nothing to attain success until success stops them. Of romantic people who fight for love until love whips them.
0: Archer said you were going to get rid of her quick.
1: Shut up and get back upstairs.
2: If you are a gentleman, there is no justification for boorishness.
1: He asked me how my work was going. What was I supposed to say? Great?
0: Incidentally, who was that overgrown bullfighter you danced with all night? Don't talk like that about Georgia or Jonathan. He's a great man. <laughs> there are no great men, Buster. There's only men. You're the first person I ever knew who began by hating him and ended up liking him. Do you always do everything backwards? Do you still love him? Cat, that look off your face! Who gave you the right to dig into me and turn me inside out and decide what I'm like? How do you know how I feel about you, how deep it goes? Maybe it's deeper than I want it to be. Maybe I don't want anybody to own me, you or anybody. Get out! Get out! Never has anyone dared to put on the screen a story told with such boldness, such frankness. Never has
2: anyone assembled such an array of fabulous players. Wherever and whenever you discuss
0: great motion picture drama, the picture that will be talked about first will be the bad and the beautiful.
1: Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Vincent Minnelli has been praised throughout the eons when it comes to his work in musicals. But the melodramas he produced did not manage to capture the attention of uh, this generation of film lovers and film goers. But at the time... His films in melodrama did capture attention, and they still have more than a lesson or two to teach. He did just that kind of lesson in 1952 by grabbing the likes of Kirk Douglas to play an amalgamation of powerful Hollywood figures to talk about the folly of fame, stardom, movie production. And here to talk with us is a writer, director... Whose works include such bold and daring fare as Writer's Workshop, Coffee Breath, and Such a Nice Car We Have. He is also the only man who is able to imitate the facial expression of scared Brian Cranston. Please welcome Ryan F. Johnson. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> hey hello hey how you doing hello, ryan zach. Wow. i'm well yeah you we, it's we, good to see you yeah it's such a fallacy this see this is the beauty of make-believe we were already talking so i me saying hello to you again is is very irrelevant at this point we it tripped me up for a second i was like oh wait yeah, yeah. <laughs> hello zach yeah don't Thank worry you you, i want to assure you we, 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 over Skype, you have not had a stroke Thank you um, But welcome to the show, <laughs> sir You were on a list of people yeah, that man. I wanted on this show From the moment it got started after Shamley kicked off um, I sent cool. you a list And um, you you chose some Vincent Minnelli That I don't think many people have watched Or um, outside of Film Circles Um yeah maybe not it's It's kind of a
0: weird thing
1: (laughs) it's it's interesting (laughs) given the last year that we've had with the discussions around mank which will definitely come up in the conversation um but um before that i want to get let the listeners get to know you a little bit so um i knew you through film school um but yes uh this is not just uh uh me you know stroking your gob here you are literally a very talented filmmaker who has writing oh. ability that I do. I, I do kind of take a take a step back with it. Um, uh, oh, tell a little bit you. about tell tell the people out there like how you got into filmmaking, what your preferences are, and what kind of stories you like to tell.
0: Oh man, um, can you hear me alright? By the way, I just want to make sure. Yes,
1: I can hear you. I can hear you, you through hear all the okay, different. Uh, yes, you're totally good, sir. Fire away. Oh, yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I got into filmmaking. Um, I was when I was like a little kid. Um, I saw Jurassic Park by a little unknown filmmaker, Steven Spielberg. And I got obsessed with um, his stuff and his work when I was kind of a little kid. And that's when I figured out what a, a director was. Mm-hmm. Um, and ever since then, I sort of like wanted to kind of, I wanted to do that. And I wanted to, you know, be a part of that, that world and do things. You know, I was like, oh, you can do that. I, I want to do that. You so want to enter the dream? Started it, and then it just...
1: Yeah, you, right, want, exactly. you wanted to enter and that dream changed. factory and just open it up to a wide, wide world of ever-changing experiences that then mm-hmm. crush your soul. <laughs> yeah,
0: so just to be a part of that. It's like, oh, this is like a thing people do. I want to, whatever that is, I want to be
2: involved mm-hmm. in
0: that. And then, you know, over the years, you know, your, your taste sort of expands and you discover other things and, and that sort of, yeah, that, that interest and that sort of excitement about it never really, you know, hasn't gone away. Um, I just love, yeah, I'm sort of into... You know writing and directing specifically and i I like to you know write my own stuff um and in terms of preferences of things i mean I, i like a lot of different types of things but i i tend to kind of gravitate more towards um like character you know like kind of weirder kind of more idiosyncratic character pieces I guess you'd say maybe like the, the term absur- drama the, the
1: term absurdist um comes to mind for me a little bit you you, yeah, have, a, you yeah. have a very very unique sense of humor and writers Workshop is a I'm gonna put a link to it for people to watch it's available on Ryan's cool. site it's a film that it, you're very accurate about peer review <laughs> and, I, and, and I and what what's more amazing to it is that you do you have a outlook on the world that I don't think I've seen out of other writers. Um, Now it's easy to say that when it comes to any individual writer, because you know, everybody's got their own angle on the world, but I can't pinpoint you with anybody else. Really. What's more (laughs) your, um, your taste in film uh, opened up my avenues a lot because this will be one of, this is one of the, primary examples in my head. We were in film school together and the I worked at a movie theater at the time and we started showing Blue Valentine and I remember you right. pushing going like we're going to go to Blue Valentine and I think I knew virtually <laughs> nothing about it beyond the praise coming out of the festival circuit. We went in just a bunch of film school kids hanging out sitting down we get in for free. We're going to watch Blue Valentine. And I don't know about, I can't remember how you walked out, but I walked out of there stumbling going like, Jesus H. Christ. (laughs) The the emotional roller coaster that, like this.
0: Yeah. I don't know why I was um, pushing that as like a group. Like, hey, let's go see this movie. It's a good, it was a good push. but...
1: but, But it was a good push, though, because it does open up the avenues of like, we've got to talk about the depressing angles of cinema as well as the more triumphant or hopeful ones, you know, like the, sure. you can't, I'm not going to try to push that debate, but you can't just have happy Marvel endings every day. You've got to have sure. a nice dose of cynicism in your life or at the very least ambiguity or Tommy Lee Jones, not knowing if he woke up from a dream and then you hear the ticking of a clock and then the screen yes. cuts to black. Yes. I'm talking about no country for all men, people. I <laughs> <laughs> It's by two brothers. You've <laughs> probably heard of them. <laughs> um, two, two brothers. Two brothers, yeah. <laughs> They've never made a bad movie. Fun fact, never made a bad movie. If you try to tell me intolerable yes. cruelty is bad, I will fight you. <laughs> like
0: I will not tolerate it. Yeah,
1: it's, it, Yes, I am intolerable of that cruelty. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, There we go. Ta- see, see, Ryan, you're already getting on the wavelength of this show. We can do as many bad puns as we want, and we can just be proud of ourselves for enjoying this Perfect. time together. Perfect. Um, I want to ask you another question in regards to being a filmmaker and getting into film. What has your connection been with Golden Age Hollywood, and specifically, like, what has your exposure been, say, uh, a while ago versus in the more recent, uh, in more recent memory?
0: Um, I don't. That's a good question. Um, I think I'm trying to think like the first like kind of golden age Hollywood things that I saw. I think it was like, I, I probably like classic things when you're younger. Like I think I, I watched, you know, I think like, you know, like wizard of Oz or something, mm-hmm. you know, like that kind of thing or, or a uh, sound of music the sound of music. Would that be in the, yeah, that? Would yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, uh, that that's thing, I mean right? like by, by the gauge of what this show's supposed to be. Yeah. 1962, totally within the realm of that. That's, and it's also falling yeah. in that same tradition of, you know, big lavish musical, Except this time, we're also fighting Nazis because it's cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Which, also, R.I.P.
0: Uh, Chris Plummer. Yeah, right.
1: Christopher Plummer passing. Like between this, Cloris Leachman, Hal Hallbrook. Like, f-
0: yeah. I'm right. getting yeah. I'm getting
1: 2016 vibes. So I want people to start checking in on Steven Tyler and see if he's okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> not Steven Tyler. No. <laughs> no, not him. Not the front man for Aerosmith. I don't know if Alice Cooper goes. Then my soul yeah. might die. Um, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, you've seen more or less like some of those like established classics.
0: Yeah, I think that's where it started. And then I think I just as a, it seemed like I, I wasn't really into that era for a while, oh, yeah. you know, like when I was kind of in high school, I kind of wasn't, I was more into I don't know, like 90s, art tour, you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, but Yeah, I, sun,
1: you're, you're Sundance kids. Right. Yeah.
0: But then I started getting a, a little older. And I think it was like around film school and sort of, honestly, I think it was getting into like, you know, when I got into like Martin Scorsese and, and his work and hearing him talk about a lot of those films in that era because he, you know, he loves it. And then, you know, again, being a Spielberg fan, he talks a lot about that era and, and it just sort of like, Started appreciating it or thinking like I should kind of go back and check out some of these movies and revisit the, or sort of, you know, enmesh myself a little bit more. And I'm certainly not I'm not an expert by any means in that era. I, there's a lot of stuff I haven't seen. But mm. um, I think, yeah, it was probably like my early 20s, you know, kind of like film school you know, age is kind of when I started appreciating it more and going back and watching things and it, kind of discovering more about it.
1: It's interesting that you bring up Scorsese and, and Spielberg on that. Cause Scorsese's your obvious go-to answer. Um, I've talked about on this show before, it's illegal to have a film pre 1968, have a behind the scenes featurette without him having an interview. Cause if you do, you break the law. <laughs> <wall. a> <laughs> like, <laughs> like seriously, Get like tape. there's like literally a row of Warner brothers titles on my shelf and I can name, I can think of maybe four of them that don't have Scorsese <laughs> interviewed on them whatsoever. <laughs> and I was, uh, I mean, like I was doing research on um, film history at one point where I finally caught that Alice Guy Blaché documentary, which ended up blowing my mind. And I was like, mm-hmm. "Man, this movie's great. It's it's just we need something's missing. I don't know." And then they show a clip of Martin Scorsese at a at a gala event or something like that, talking about Alice Giebler. And I'm just like, "They figured out a way to put him in there. They just could. They, he did, he was filming The Irishman. He just didn't have time to talk to Pamela. Like that's the only reason. That's the only reason in my mind." Um, but uh, Spielberg is another. Uh, filmmaker of that new wave generation who is unashamed to talk about those influences. I mean, mm-hmm. listening to him gush about citizen Kane is adorable. Yeah. Like to this, like in this, in this way, he's just like, we're going to use complex shots and convoluted story to tell a man's life. Like it's, it's awesome to see his passion behind it. And he apparently has a rule where his kids had to start watching black and white movies at a young age, which, right. You know, like, If you think that's parental abuse, you 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 might be part of the problem of parental abuse because that is actually proper education. Um, Yeah. Um. But so then I will ask the last question before we start diving into the subject at hand. Mm -hmm. When did you get exposed to the bad and the beautiful of all things?
0: Well, okay. So same thing again to bring to talk about Scorsese again. So this was a couple year, a few years ago. I think I I'm sure you've seen this. There's like a list online that he, that Marty's put up where it's like a list of like 80 movies that, you know, everybody, you know, every filmmaker, every person should watch. And I'm like, Oh, that's cool. And I was looking at that list and I was like, I'm going to watch all of these movies. I'm going to go through the, every single one and watch all of them. I didn't make it through all of them, but there it's, it's listed in alphabetical order. And so the B's came up pretty quickly and bad. The beautiful was one of them. Mm-hmm. And I'd never, I'd never heard of it or seen it before. And so I watched it and I just like I loved it. It was like one of my favorite it was like my favorite one on that list up until that point. And then I kept going. I think I got to like the G's, the Fs or G's, I can't remember. That's about as far as I got and then I think so.
1: I should probably I should probably put a link to that list and then people can just start you throwing should. throwing titles out to me of being like, Do you do this one next? And I'll be like, Well, that one's after nineteen sixty eight, but okay. Scorsese likes it. Yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe I can break my own my own stupid rule that I made for my podcast that I can control. <laughs> like it's kind of yeah, irrelevant. If you need to, yeah. So then you, um, so basically you kind of found this through Scorsese sharing through his passion yeah. for it. Um, exactly. So, yeah. but so when you saw it, where you like? I mean, I guess the question that I would have bef- like, just right before that we dive in here is. Were you surprised how accurate it was to how film production looks today? (laughs) Because
0: I guess so. Yeah. I mean, it felt pretty, if, yeah, it felt like it was very accurate to especially the time period. And then now, yeah, just kind of how things run and how, you know, it's sort of like, you know, it's a business and a lot of people are, always trying to, you know, think trying to they're trying to make moves and they're trying to think about, you know, what's gonna hit and how to make things yeah, you know, like work and sort of manipulate people to an extent, you know, but but there's also a magic to the whole thing at the same time. Um so that's just kind of apparent to what it what the industry is, you know, and I think that's so I think it's timeless in that way, which is kind of cool about it.
1: Yeah. And you're and you're not wrong because like it when we talk about the golden age of Hollywood and pre 1968 cinema specifically, there's two very clear points in history. The first one is from the birth of cinema itself up into the early to mid twenties where initially the director is kind of King. Um, Mm -hmm. You have a lot more control as a director because it's been stated in multiple books about this era Nobody had any reason to think this was a legitimate business. This was literally just another way to make a buck. Oh, cool. We've got this nifty technology. Let's film something out in the, out in the wilderness or out in a hill where we can make a Western. Bam, sell it for a nickel, a person, get our profit back, make some more. Nobody looked at it as art. Nobody looked at it as even serious business up until things start progressing and moving and shaping its way. Folks like Alice Guy-Blaché, who innovated cinema techniques for us that we still use today, she was a very prominent director of her era. And then once men found out, oh, this is a business that we can actually thrive in, it's when you start seeing women's roles overhauled specifically. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as directors in general are concerned, um, I try to refer people back to Secret History of Hollywood as much as I can, primarily because what he does is explain it in a way that makes cohesive sense to today in the universal horrors series that he did. He talks a lot about the formation of universal studios. And one of the things to know is, is that at the time that universal was running still in silent films, they had under their employee one Irving Thalberg, Irving Thalberg Mm -hmm. was the boy wonder producer. Irving Thalberg could do no wrong. He was, he had an intuitive instinct for how to tell a story and how to get a story out there. He apparently gave Eric von Stroheim what's what, because Eric von Stroheim as talented as as he was, was a fucking maniac. (laughs) Because if you look at the runtimes on his films that are supposed to be there, you find Mm -hmm. that he didn't know how to turn the camera off. (laughs) Like this hours upon hours, which I'm one to talk. I've been telling people, if you don't watch the Irishman, you're just incorrect. And <laughs> I've used, I, I've used bolder words. I, I just, I, I mainly, I mainly keep promoting it one. Cause I love it. But two, I think people watch that movie wrong because they watched Scorsese movies wrong. But, um, mm. you, know, you anyway, at the end of the day, he laid into Stroheim and said like, you've, you've shot enough, you're done. Stroheim says, right. but I'm not done. And he goes, Oh yeah, you fucking are. Like <laughs> <laughs> now we're gonna take we're gonna take your film over and we're gonna cut it to a manageable length where people might, you know, come back. <laughs> like so he's not people might watch it. And so this is where the director's power starts getting really yanked away and the producer becomes more the king. And suddenly Right. Directors are there to guide the actors within the day-to-day operation of a set. Mm-hmm. Occasionally you get People who break that mold, whether it's Alfred Hitchcock or Orson Welles or John Huston or um, Vincent Minnelli, who we're going to talk mm-hmm. about today, um, who find a way to break through where, what their producers are telling them to do um, and to add their own flourishes to what is otherwise very standard fair, very standard cinematography, very standard lighting. There right. are things they do to innovate this. Um, Mm -hmm. now when we talk about the bad and the beautiful, I want to bring up Manelli a little bit here, obviously because he's the director, but also because (laughs) for a director who's known for musicals, primarily his career has run into some very interesting territory for how he does musicals and, or does melodrama. Um, Mm -hmm. but he was born in Chicago, born and baptized in Chicago, I should say, because (laughs) it's always important. It's always important. Get, get yourself baptized, I guess. <laughs> not a sinner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> it's going to be all right. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> going to be all right. Um, so anyway, um, he started working in photog- photographing actors in Chicago's theater district, and his interest in the theater was consumed by that. His first major job was at the Chicago Theater where he worked in costumes and set design. Um, and then through that, course of theater, he works his way onto the Zigfield Follies and his reputation keeps growing from there. Zigfield Follies, a wonderful review of the era that kept on repeating year after year. Another variation on that is Earl Carroll's Vanities, which was discussed on episode 9. Rinelli's reputation keeps growing and he is offered a job at MGM by producer Arthur Freed. Prior to that, he did Get brought in to consult on a film called Artisan Models, which is a Ralph Walsh film with Jack Benny. Jack's not important in this conversation. Important is is that there's a musical sequence in Artisan Models called Public Melody Number One, with Louis Armstrong and an unfortunately black faced Martha Ray. Um, this is a scene constructed to look like a Harlem um, uh, Harlem Street where. Louis Armstrong is in a very dashing do- derby hat, nice suit, and he's talking about how his tunes are going to basically ball everybody over with the same power of a Tommy gun that a gangster has. I, I, it's, I'm i still not sure why you look out for public melody number one. I just know that Louis Armstrong tells me that. I'm listening to him.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do it. Yep. What are, you, you got it, Louis. But so anyway, Arthur Freed brings him in, and from there – He starts running through some pretty basic musicals that he's he finds a way to basically make them unique in a Busby Berkeley way, but not through the same techniques that Berkeley does. His big debut is Cabin in the Sky, which is a film with an all African-American cast features Ethel Waters, Eddie Rochester Anderson, who we've discussed in the past. Lena Horne, and Louis Armstrong. So again, working with his pal, Louis. Um, then he goes on and directs I Doed It with Red Skeleton, which, oh, yeah. <laughs> he, I Doed It? Yeah, see, because Red Skeleton played a bunch of characters with his stage and radio show, and one of them was a kid character who would go, I doed it. Yeah, because <laughs> you see. It's, it's, and
0: they made a whole film out of
1: it. yeah yeah i mean and red skeleton's a popular guy but i've listened to his radio shows and let's just say there's a reason i don't listen to them that often he's fine <laughs> he's fine he 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 helped me learn the tide theme song the theme for tide before tide pods it was just tide um <laughs> uh but really? then, yeah oh yeah it was just called It's tides in dirts out tide gets clothes cleaner than any soap any soap yes any soap tide gets clothes cleaner than any soap TIDE tide yeah all but right he was a
0: part of he he
1: Red Red was Skeleton that was his sponsor so like that show basically like the sponsors would just like only Jack's Show was able to do it like creatively, but every other show you'd do a comedy sketch, you'd break for a commercial where you'd have those cheap jingles. <laughs> right. And then you would just and then you would just go right back into like, oh yeah, it's as though the comedy just kept going for some reason. But <laughs> and then Got it. as opposed to, you know, incorporating the the product into your show and making it a gag so that people don't have to really buy your product or take it seriously. Um but then Manelli makes Meet Me in St. Louis, which is a big turning point for him because that's where he meets Judy Garland, um, who he would end up marrying. And they would then um, obviously have a child um, called Miss Cabaret. I'm sorry, no, Liza Minnelli. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry, Lucille too. Sorry, Liza Minnelli. (laughs) 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 Um, They they had first met on a film for Busby Berkeley called Strike Up the Band, but this film, Me and St. Louis, where they fall in love. Um, And then he runs the gamut on a few other films before he really breaks. I would argue he breaks the biggest with America in American in Paris, right. um, which is in 1951. Prior to this, he does the original father of the bride does Madame Bovary, which is another drama does undercurrent, which is a film noir. Um, and then he also does the pirate, which I like the pirate cause I am a fan of Gene Kelly. That's that's about all I like about the pirate. <laughs> sure. Just like yeah, let's let's watch Gene Kelly for for Gene the, Kelly yeah. Yeah. Gene do his thing. It's not bad. I mean, look, this isn't on the town where I get to watch them all wandering through New York City, but whatever, he's a pirate. I'm just going to enjoy a pirate today. He's a pirate. Yeah, that's right. And and clearly given the the plethora of pirate movies we don't have, I will take this for what it's worth. <laughs> that's true. Uh but so after an American in Paris, which is an unprecedented hit because of a 17 minute ballet sequence, (laughs) essentially American ballet by Gene Kelly. Um, the film ends up winning best picture and Minnelli's on a role that anybody would like to be in. Um, he does some uncredited work on a movie called lovely to look at, which I've never seen before, but it also has red skeleton. Um, and it's, but it was directed by Mervyn Leroy, which is probably why I haven't bothered to watch it. Um, and the, <laughs> yeah, take that, take that director of Little Caesar. <laughs> I'm not going to watch all of your movies. Um, Fuck you, Mervin. But then he does the bad and the beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. Now, this film is based on a magazine story called Of Good and Evil by George Bradshaw. And mm-hmm. it was expanded into a longer version called Memorial to a Bad Man. And it's about the last will and testament of a theater producer in New York trying right. to explain his bad behavior to three people who he's harmed. Um, yep. M- MGM secured these rights, and al- originally Don Hart- Dan Hartman was going to produce it. But then he goes over to Paramount. So Dory Sherry, who's running MGM at this time, and also Dory Sherry, He's a very complicated figure in MGM's history because he replaces Louis B. Mayer as the president of the studio, but Louis kind of sticks around, and there's infighting up the wazoo with those two, to the point where it actually causes issues for John Huston and his production of *The Red Badge of Courage*. Um, it's it's also the source of one of the greatest John Huston stories about it, Louis B. Mayer, that I'm pretty sure never happened. It's still a great story. He basically went into mayor's office and said, look, look, I don't want to be the cause of a war between the two factions in the studio. And Louis apparently said like, John, do you, John Houston? I'm ashamed of you. Do you believe in this picture? John said, yes. And he goes like, well, then you should fight for it (laughs) regardless of what (laughs) I think. And I'm rooting against you. You fight for it. And don't let me hear you talk like that again. And then apparently just walked (laughs) out. (laughs) it's like damn it's just like That's a good point which the reason i don't think it happened is because i don't think louis b Mayer would want to talk to somebody like john houston um which means he wouldn't t- want to talk to a badass but um more importantly it just seems weird for a guy to be like look it might fuck me over <laughs> but i'm self-aware enough to understand that you're amazing <laughs> But yeah. it's it's like the evil villain going like, "Look, I'm secretly rooting for you, but you know I've got to blast you with this space laser, right?"
0: <laughs> um, Which I think makes sense. I, I I buy it. Yeah, I feel like Given those the... guys are you know back in the day, they, they were with these these iconoclast dudes. You know, they were like,
2: mm-hmm. there
0: was it was a different thing. You know, maybe yeah, there was like a weird code of honor where he's like. I'm not you know yeah I don't like you but I respect you and I'm gonna tell you that it was like this weird you know macho thing going on
1: I'm gonna tank (laughs) your clearly better Civil War movie than the one I've been very successful with but just know I believe in it pats him on the back tussles his hair and sends him out the door (laughs)
0: he's like believe in yourself
1: (laughs) also fuck you
0: but also
1: go fuck yourself. Yes, exactly. And that's the story of how John Houston became so confused that the red badge of courage ended up at 69 minutes long guys. That's a movie that should be longer than 69 minutes. Um, but also nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. He managed to make it work somehow. Um, but so the project is offered then by Sherry to John Houseman, or as, uh, Orson Wells would call him trainer. <laughs> because John Hausman is a man who got a lot of his start through his collaborations with Orson Welles through the federal theater project, their productions on things such as Julius Caesar. At this same time, they are working on the mercury theater on the air. And one night in 1938, uh, Orson, uh, Howard Koch and Hausman all decided to scare the shit out of people. Uh, and it led to a contract that brought them to Hollywood, um, where they made citizen Kane. Now, People listening to this might know Hausman only through the movie Mank, and that's an okayish portrayal. But Hausman was a little bit less than uh, lovely of a human being to Wells too. There's a lot of sides to that story. Um, sure. un- unlike so, unlike some clear and cut dry examples we've dealt with today, the history of Hausman and Wells is is loaded and it's very complicated um, and everybody has their version and a lot of it ends up siding with Wells. <laughs> um, but <laughs> the people who side with Hausman aren't wrong either because Wells could also be his own worst enemy. But really? at this point after uh, his work with Orson, he goes back to the theater and then he starts working with David O. Selznick when he becomes vice president of David O. Selznick productions uh, in world war two. Um, he actually went to work for the OWI, uh, and then he went on to Paramount in 1945, um, and his first credit for the studio was a movie called The Unseen. He then goes over to RKO, which is funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, we got rid of the fat We got rid of the chubby guy. Can I come in? <laughs> Yep. Me in. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. knocking. Nah. <laughs> Hello. It's Mr. Hausman. I, I got rid of the annoying one. Can I, can I come in? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so he eventually, uh, he goes over to MGM when Sherry goes over to MGM because Sherry was working at MGM, uh, at RKO at the time. So they move over together. Um, and the first thing that Hausman does for MGM is holiday for sinners. So then he gets the bad and the beautiful, um, and the movie was going to be called "Memo to a Bad Man," um, but Hausman made the made the call uh, to change it from the New York theater to the to Hollywood because the success of All About Eve had kind of created a an avenue for people to make fun of Hollywood, um, sure. and the the Bad and the Beautiful ends up becoming more or less the uh the rush to copy the success of all about eve what's interesting Mm. is i think the bad and the beautiful succeeds in more ways than not it's kind of like friday the 13th isn't as good as halloween but friday the 13th gets a lot of things wrong that then the sequels don't because they're not following a formula that's a little bit more established um right and uh but yeah Hausman said like I, I'll do it but not as a Broadway picture I'm sick to death of Broadway is just fucking terrible I've dealt with an egotistical maniac all those years ago and I'm tired of thinking about the stage let's talk about the magic of movies and not about that horrible horrible man
0: <laughs> where there's no ego yeah, maniacal I, people.
1: I, I just filmmaking. if I hear one more this is your obedient servant Orson Welles I'm going to blow my brains out <laughs> thankfully we've relegated him to nothingness he's now overseas making small shakespeare adaptations i don't think they'll make any impression on Katsu criterion releasing them all in beautiful restorations um yeah now what's funny about this is we're we're going to be talking about some kirk douglas today clark gable was originally attached to star in this and then spencer tracy um, yeah i was reading that which i would think clark gable would be very interesting in this role Right. He's not he's a he's not a performer that I'm especially fond of. However, when he's correct for a role, he really works. Like Right. It's super strange. Like I'm not like I mean let's put gone with the wind aside, I've just never really been into his particular motif when it comes to films like it's very much a macho personality yeah and and, you know like i i admire that in some actors but for some reason in clark gable i just don't get it now Mm -hmm. um spencer tracy i could also see playing this but also spencer tracy was fairly old at this point to a point where i think that it would only work if they were going to find a way to make him look younger and Mm. and then show him as he was then at the end but the film we have, we don't see what Shields looks like years later. So right. we end up getting Kirk Douglas. Manelli is assigned the project. Um, and Vincent Manelli had this to say about the film. People who read the script asked me why I wanted to do it. It was against Hollywood, etc. I told them I didn't see the man as an unregenerate heel first, because we find how he, ha- he has, he has a weakness, which makes him human. And second, because he's tough on himself as he is on everyone else, which makes him honest. That's the complex, Mm -hmm. wonderful thing about human beings, whether they're in Hollywood or in the automobile business or in neckties, Um, which is, (laughs) I like how neckties is at the end of it. (laughs) Or neckties. Yeah, look, look, the necktie people don't get enough acknowledgement. And I've been (laughs) Simonelli. I'm going to make sure in every interview that I do going forward, I mention the necktie business. Give those people. Drop them. Yep. Yeah, give the people some work, and then maybe I'll get some free ties on the side. Because, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. because my neck is yep. cold, Johnson. My neck is cold. It's been some I need some
0: different neckties. <laughs> I need a lot of different ones.
1: <laughs> I need a green one. I need a blue one. I need a red one. You know. I the need art- blue.
0: I need a knit tie. I need a silk one.
1: Can you give me a technicolor one for when I go see a show called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Coat? Because I'm not wearing <laughs> a coat, but I want to wear a necktie that's technicolor. <laughs>
0: Um, also, yeah, Technicolor necktie, just in the te- ne- Technicolor necktie mm-hmm. movie idea.
1: Ooh, god, I think, Maybe I think we should have pitched that. I think we could get away with that. I think we. <laughs> I kind of want Alice Cooper to still be in it somehow from that uh from that TV version he did a couple years oh, back. Oh right, where I'm just like, damn, can we can we just get that same cast but just make it about neckties? Um, it's, can we just?
0: Wait a minute! Turn off the mics. We got a brain scan. Yeah, oh, God, yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, guys. Uh, technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, we didn't just pitch a multi-million-dollar musical that's gonna make us all fucking money. <laughs> um, yeah, but I will. Huge. So I'm gonna say this right up front: Kirk Douglas equals motherfucking legend. Um, yeah. we, we lost him around a year ago. This time last year. Um, That's right, and he died at the age of one hundred and three. And in the course of one hundred and three years, he managed to work in early Hollywood, serve in World War II, get Dalton Trumbo off the blacklist, have a child named Michael, (laughs) and then and then have a stroke, and then overcome that stroke by becoming a lecturer. I don't know. Who put the super serum in the Douglas family, or should I say the Danielvich family? Cause his original name is your Danielvich, Danieliovich, um, a Hebrew, and uh, he was born in Amsterdam, New York, in 1916. Amsterdam, New York. Yeah, yeah. He's he he is he he's. It's amazing how the way he plays this role almost makes you have sympathy for the subjects that this role is trying to portray. Not, mm-hmm. not too dissimilar dissimilarly from how citizen Kane does it. Um, yeah. where citizen Kane, even though it is about evil, <laughs> <laughs> it, you, there is a humanity to it that you don't hate Charlie Kane you kind of, right. but you kind of hate what he's become. But also, there's the understanding that he's always been this way. And then it had to do something with his sled, and you know. And then Paul Stewart, who's also in this movie, said rosebud. I can tell you about the rosebud. And then, Maybe. and then we burned it. And then Spielberg found it, and then bought it from somewhere. <laughs> that apparently, Wait, really,
0: he bought the actual.
1: So, so there was a couple sleds made um oh, wow. the one obviously that was on screen that got burned that's the one that got burned right there's other ones that are backup sleds like the ones that are used um uh outside of the Kane boarding house in colorado right. and then there's this one as a backup and i guess spielberg found got one of them and purchased it and this apparently surprised wells because apparently he said like i thought we burned them all oh no <laughs> Wait Give a minute. <laughs> wait. Wait a minute. How many do I have in my garage where I can sell them so I can finish up on the other side of the wind? Come on. come on, I going? Sled? No. Shit, shit, no. Shit, this shit, is shit. just a false nose from Hamlet. No. This is just a false nose from Othello. No. This is just a false nose from *Chance at Midnight*. God damn it! I don't have any fucking sleds. Just fake noses everywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, the deck of cards. <laughs> oh yes. Oh oh. What what if? documentary about me being a magic man and then also my girlfriend naked what about that how would that mm-hmm. play out f for fake Perfect. it's a great movie despite the fact that i just made fun of it <laughs> <laughs> um, the
0: best movies you should be able to make probably. oh
1: god yeah yeah absolutely and this is one we're gonna be talking about within this um but um uh well i wanted to bring this up a little bit is that we have a couple of personalities tied into this film um, right. that we'll be talking about as we go along. And I'm going to kind of bring them up as the story itself progresses, because it's interesting how it kind of grabs at everything, but also manages to be nonspecific in certain areas. Right. Um, but we'll go through the the credits right now. Directed by Vincent Minnelli or Necktie Minnelli, uh, produced Necktai by di- produced by John. Please don't bring Orson over here to kill me, Hausman. Um, screenplay okay. by Charles Schnee. Charles Schnee, based on tribute to a Batman. Me. Yeah, Schnee. <laughs> Schnee. Schnee, bring me Peter. Bring me Peter she- Pan. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, <Charles laughs> me. now now before i before i leave him with that awful joke he did write there will be night they live by night sorry there will be night he wrote the fier- the furies which is a great movie with barbara Stanwyck. if you've never seen it um seen it. and red river um so yeah he's a he's, right? a, he's an amazing writer and i just it reduced his name right. to peter pan jokes <laughs> um but the cast yeah. in here is stacked you've got lana turner Kirk Douglas, mm-hmm. Walter Pidgeon, Dick Powell, Barry Sullivan, Powell. Gloria, Gloria Graham, Gilbert Rowland, Leo G. Carroll, Paul Stewart, Ivan Tresult, Sammy White, and Elaine Stewart. This is a impressive cast, and Paul Stewart, clearly, he was able to stay friends with John Hasman during the Wells years because... <laughs> I, yeah. I would love to know. know the talks that went on set between those two going like do you remember when Orson did that? Like, yeah, that was fucked up. Do you remember when he did I mean, that? That was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and more yeah. more than likely they'd be lying out their assholes because all the reports indicate the production of Citizen King was very fairly smooth. It was the aftermath. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was just a, a mess. Um, but um also Leo G. Carroll, we've talked about him a bit before. Um In various different respects, but you would know him primarily from all the times we talked about Mr. Hitchcock, because I put Leo in Sparebound, Strangers on a Train, and North by Northwest. You're welcome, fucking everybody. And how does Leo repay me in 1952? By playing a very respectable version of myself that (laughs) puts me out to be the good guy and not the, you know terrible person now kirk douglas on the other hand he represents something much worse something driven by methamphetamines um <laughs> and um, uh so within this i think we can go into the plot here um we open up and jonathan shields is getting ghosted by all his friends <laughs>
0: basically what's happening yeah, yeah. Just, yeah
1: it's it this is hollywood Um, what I will point out about the film is that no, there's no specific year given. So it's almost like, yeah, that's interesting. They kind of want to leave it in a timeless state. um, Which I mean uh, before we uh, actually, this is a good question. Did you get shades of Citizen Kane when you watched this film in terms of how?
0: Yeah, I do. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why exactly, but like it just kind of has a similar kind of tone and vibe to it. There's yeah has kind of a mysterious element to it, I think.
1: Yeah, I think it has to—I think the big connection with it that I noticed right off the bat is that we're telling the story of a man's life through the perspectives Mm -hmm. of different people.
0: Other people, right.
1: Yeah, and in the case of Kane, it's, you know, going to interviews with different people here— it's it comes in the form of Harry Pebble calling them all over to his house for some kind of. It's kind of like in in it when the librarian Mike calls all the other kids, going like he's back. <laughs> he's
0: back. We got to get together. Yeah, we've got to get. He is back. Yeah, it is kind of jo-
1: like Jonathan Shields is it.
0: <laughs> he's back 27 years later.
1: Yeah, he comes back every 27 years to make a movie and piss everybody off. Make a
0: film. He wants he wants you guys to work with him. <laughs>
1: Oh my God! Bill Skarsgård as Jonathan Shields as it the clown, as it <laughs> and Pennywise the clown yeah, <laughs> that would be that would be horrible. I'm not gonna lie. I, <laughs> I be horrifying. But I would want Andy Muschetti to still direct it. <laughs> see sure. see what he can get out of it. He already put Peter Dardanovich in there in the second one as a cameo. So here's hoping. Um, there you go. But we go through the. Various outside lives of director Fred Amiel, played by Barry Sullivan, movie star Georgia Georgia Lorison, played by Lana Turner, and screenwriter James Lee Bartlow, played by Dick Powell. And uh, <laughs> we'll get into it. He, uh, They each refused to speak to him. Now, Fred and Georgia, they they blow him off in a more... Casualish manner like fred fred like hears that it's john and then he just goes like okay they they're on the uh they're on the crane and they're preparing a shot
0: right yeah, yeah.
1: hands him the phone and he just says like back to one <laughs> just disappears yeah. like a like a like a badass riding his ship in the night <laughs> and uh and then we go to george's house and her maid answers the phone and george is like i'm not here um and like she goes yes you are and like I'm still not here and then so the maid gives some excuse so they both kind of just brush him off without even addressing him but we do see Georgia lorison picking up the phone to hear what Jonathan is saying that this is a motif that's going to play throughout the film but then we get the James Lee Bartlow who James has my favorite response which he's going like oh huh? is he paying collect okay put him on hello Jonathan <laughs> <laughs> Die. <laughs> like, I mean, what was the line? <laughs> he, drop dead. That's it. Drop dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah drop, drop dead. dead. <laughs> and he just hangs up the phone he's and like, goes whoa. back to clickety clack, clickety clack. <laughs> uh, and now, when we find out what happens to James, it does become more apparent where it's just it's like, sad. oh, you had more than one word to say to him. You know that. <laughs> and like, the, yeah. your restraint is incredible. Um, but they are mm-hmm. all called um, by Harry Pebble, played by Walter Pigeon. In, in his office and he lays it all out for me. He, he gives them all forma, formalities going like, you know, congratulations on being a success, you being a success, you being a success. Hey, look at these six Oscars on my wall. Anyway, <laughs> which by the way, the uh, we'll get this out of the way right now. At the end of the film, there is a special thanks to the Academy Award, uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts, Arts and Sciences for letting us show these beautiful Oscars on display.
0: Look at the statue.
1: <laughs> and there's apparently... I can't tell in this specific production, but in other productions, like in a star is born of the era, the letting out of random statues, uh, Oscar statues from the Academy is very rare and very taken very, very seriously. So like it's guarded, you do your shot with it and then it goes back into the suitcase. Um, the, the security of which has been mostly foolproof except for 2016. um, (laughs)
0: When we realized we were in a simulation. Come on, yes. guys. Yeah.
1: yeah. Why? What would you do with those envelopes? Seriously? <laughs> I'm not angry. I'm just concerned.
0: <laughs> I'm just concerned. I have a theory. I think, I think it's because we, I think it's because of cell phones and social media. I think mm-hmm. there's something about, because I think there was something that talked about like, one of the people like he was like looking at his phone on it he like, took a picture on it for instagram right before he was supposed to give off the envelope and that's where it got plugged i uh, think there's like we're all just a little more distracted you know yeah. what i mean we're almost like a little more not paying attention and it's like,
1: like, so you know, so what just? so what happened. you're saying is i really need to stop tracking my weight on instagram because i might accidentally <laughs> put the weight back on <laughs> Which would? He might
0: just give the wrong envelope. Maybe. Wait, I don't know.
1: wait. Best actress is my belly. Okay. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. This seems if all. is me? Yeah, this seems all kinds of wrong for multiples of reasons. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> wait, I'm sorry, sorry you guys. I'm clearly not best picture. Moonlight, you won. <laughs>
0: I am not the best picture. <laughs> this picture of me is not the best picture. That... <laughs>
1: Now, that's a fake poster Shit. I want right now. <laughs> a picture of you holding you a picture of you going, I'm not best picture. <laughs> I'm not best picture. Whoops. I didn't win best picture. <laughs> Hashtag my bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not bad. Oh, God. We're I'm making this bad. on
1: Photoshop. Um, but Shields, Shields, however, has plenty of best picture wins because he is the Basically, the financial end of Shield Pictures <laughs> and Shield Productions, and uh, he's called the men to be like, "Look, Jonathan wants to make another movie, and I can't raise a m- raise the money on a movie made by Jonathan Shields alone and get a dime. But if I have all three of you, I can get two million dollars by tomorrow, and." Yes. He basically goes into I'm just gonna call it what it is, guilt tripping them for the course of two hours. <laughs> yep. Um not and that's not to dismiss the movie, but I'm just like, oh my god. He's basically doing the whole like, now you can't forget the time that Jonathan did that.
0: <laughs> did this for you, remember?
1: Yeah, exactly. And the first one we do, be, like he he wants to get their permission to uh, to get Shields on the phone and give the answer.
0: Whether or not, they're, whether or not they all want to work with him, it's, it's a, yeah, yeah, it's a director, it's an actress, actor, and then the screenwriter. And Shields Shields has worked with all of them before,
1: and has burned and, um, all. And they all hate him. Yeah, they, <laughs> he's burned all those bridges thoroughly with the finest of kerosene. And, <laughs> and he's like, hey,
0: if we, you know, I need you. I want to make a movie with all three of you guys doing your respect. What you would respectively do? Yeah. And they're like, eh. and so yeah, so they're waiting for his phone call because he's like overseas. Right? Yeah,
1: he's in Paris. And, which, what he's doing right. in Paris, I'm not sure, but <laughs> he's,
0: just, he's just vibing in Paris. Right he's just
1: now. he's just on the beach at Cannes, going like, I just saw this amazing movie. It's called Seven Samurai. It's gonna be amazing. Like maybe we'll like, remake. Oh, we'll remake it, Fred. You direct it, James. You write a script for it that's hopefully not offensive. And Georgia, you can play the lead samurai. <laughs>
0: be the main samurai you'll
1: be you'll be samurai one through two and then two through seven (laughs) we'll get other people
0: (laughs) you'll be all seven samurai all seven of them
1: georgia lorison georgia lorison and georgia lorison
0: in the sense in like all different costumes (laughs) like eddie murphy vibes
1: oh my god
0: that would be awesome. But we
1: have to distinguish, though, that these are American samurai because this is treading into very offensive terms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're gonna get canceled. No, Sorry. no, it's fine. American seven American samurai. That's how we solve this issue here. Seven American yeah. samurai. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, he goes into like, now, come on, boys and girls. Think about it. Think about all that Jonathan Shields has done for you. I can't do a Walter Pigeon, okay. so he's just going to sound like a goober. And um, they go back in time. We get a little bit of a flashback because we're first talking to Fred Emil, who was an aspiring director. Um, and we... Start off his flashback at a funeral where Fred Amiel is giving uh the the corpse some shit. <laughs> They're giving this
0: Yeah, he's talking shit about yeah, he's at the funeral for the Kirk Douglas character, Jonathan Shields, the producer. His,
1: his father Jonathan
0: Shield's father, yeah, who was a mega <laughs> producer guy. Yeah.
1: Who apparently in Hollywood died. Yeah, who apparently also burned a lot of bridges. Like apparently people right. did not like him. Um, everyone hated him. Yeah. By and, that point. Yeah. And so fred's giving them shit throughout the funeral and then we he's cut to that... shit about his... <laughs> his dad and he's just, like like right to his face and you see kirk douglas looking up going like boy That's don't cute. test me and
0: i think it's actually kind of a brilliant i think it's kind of a brilliant way to like introduce that character mm-hmm. on screen because it it does kind of make you it kind of endears you a little bit to the kirk douglas character you know it's kind of like yeah. the, that save the cat where you sort of are like oh you like kind of feel bad for him because like his dad just died and then this other character that we're supposed to like that we're going into his flashback of, is like talking shit about his dad's, You know what I mean? It, you sort of feel bad, so it it makes you kind of bond a little bit, which is I think kind of smart. Oh smart yeah, thing.
1: and it, and what's more, it does lay into the fact of like it's funny because this being a film about Hollywood at a time when Hollywood is still ingrained in itself, like mm. like it can't separate itself from itself to a, to an extent. The fact that they do I, make him likable. Is actually kind of easy on my eyes nowadays. Um, but even if I saw this back a few years back when I was like, you know, like younger and into more subversive cinema, far more than I might be now, uh, I would still find this character interesting because he runs through the gamut, as we see. Because the next shot right after that, he's paying um, mourners at the funeral, right. giving them like all eleven bucks. All the people he's
0: paying them all the people. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> now this isn't unheard of this is like i mean this is a trope that you've seen before but like it lays into the idea of this his father was so reviled as a producer that even if they respected him on a business level they were not respectful of him on a personal level to come to his funeral to show up. yeah which right. like i mean honestly like the only reason it doesn't work today is because I don't think there's anybody who out there who would ever convince you to receive $12 to go mourn at Harvey Weinstein's funeral. <laughs> right, but you right. know what? I don't care. Like, it, I mean, I don't even th- I think honestly, at that point, they just chuck them in the ground and they just <laughs> they don't even bother to fill the hole. All right, <laughs> <But laughs> bud. Yeah. 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 It's almost as if you shouldn't have done anything. <laughs>
0: You shouldn't have died. We don't yeah, really yeah. want to deal with this.
1: <laughs> hey, just... Listen, lifeless corpse of Harvey Weinstein, you're ruining my day. <laughs>
0: I, don't want to, I don't want to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> Look,
1: can't Jerry do it? Today's my day off. Yeah. <laughs> day off. I'm sick. <laughs> <laughs> COVID. <laughs> I can't. I'm sick. I'm I can't sick. Come... Hey, six feet apart, right? How do I know that he doesn't have COVID? <laughs> Well, um I know that.
0: Well, lifeless corpses of COVID. Yeah,
1: actually, though we actually, I think there was a report that he did get COVID in prison. Where I was. Did he like, get? It? Yeah,
0: yeah, I heard yeah, that he, he got it like in prison. And I and I kind of oh, just man. like
1: I just kind of kicked back and went like. <laughs> 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 yeah, but anyway, he um, yeah, he's paying the mourners at the funeral, and he flatly refuses to give Fred any money because he's just like, no, 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 no. I saw you.
0: <laughs> You're being a dick. I heard you.
1: Yeah. yeah. You, you Dicks don't get $11. Dicks get told to see the door, like you know? Um, and then Fred feels guilty about it, which is like interesting. Like they do play off of just like, yes, he's paying mourners for the funeral, but clearly that's, this has to do with an attachment to his father and not, it's more just like his father was just like the most unbearable human being imaginable. Whereas Jonathan is much more, bearable and tolerable he's charming as a matter charming. of fact yeah, yeah um charming to a to a detriment um but fred goes to his mansion to apologize jonathan opens the door asks him flat out like what are you what do you do and he goes like well i'm in the business i do a little bit of everything but i'm trying to be a director yep As him come inside the house is barren emptied mm-hmm. It's unlike it's it's very much like the opposite of a Xanadu kind of thing where the house is still full with the artifacts that Charles Foster came bought. Here there's nothing. Like yep. he's been wiped out. Jonathan Shields basically has to reboot himself. And that comes in the form of working with Fred on amongst other things Poverty Row pictures and like basically like grinding their grinding their gears on anything they can get their hands on like work on anything now you and i have had different experiences but the one commonality would be the same is that we all have to you know do do i don't like calling it grunt work because i still find it to be wonderfully valuable work but some people call it low tier work you have to do your grip work you have to do pa work you've got to do everything you can to learn what you need to do and what I love about this film is that Fred points out we weren't, like, master picture makers. We were, like, secondhand salesmen, but we learned our craft. So it yep. is it is a movie about the... Hollywood at that time, as it still existed, was start at the bottom, work your way up.
0: Work your way up. Do hard work. Worker. Yeah,
1: or or find what you're good at and, you know, develop within Just, there. Yeah. Like, yeah. my my aunt's father worked for carpentry for Universal Studios. Now, he worked oh, wow. mainly on the park, but you know, that's a job. That's a job that provided yeah. him a stable income insurance. I'm sure <laughs> plenty of benefits. You know, who doesn't want to hang yeah. around Universal all day and <laughs> go like, hey, look, isn't that kid with the glasses uh, doing some weird things with that robotic shark over there? What the, what the fuck that's going to be? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> back to hammering. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's that? A ma- big ass dinosaur? What the fuck's that gonna do? Oh well, back to nailing. <laughs> well,
0: Deck isn't gonna build itself. It's
1: like the Forrest Gump of Universal Studios. <laughs> it's just like, well, they it's made around every major. Okay? <laughs> it doesn't really realize what it is. And, they, <laughs> and then they made a dinosaur movie. I don't know if anybody wanted to see a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> And then they made a movie about a mathematician who was crazy, and I didn't think anybody would like it, but people seemed to like that redhead kid. <laughs> he was a fine director. <laughs> and then I saw a bald man drive a car in insane directions. They ended up doing that seven times. <laughs> A um, lot of times, I uh, saw that car a lot of times. Oh God, get, get ready, get ready, get ready! They're going to space in two years. <laughs> are they actually? That's what I've heard. Is they're, they're Everybody's saying like, "Look, I'm not saying space, but space."
0: <laughs> Look, I'm not saying they should go to space, but I'm just saying space. Maybe I, I think
1: maybe space? if I'm correct, how did this get made? Podcast has been pitching this for years, and I'm like, that makes think, the most uh, sense. Where else are I they, they going to go? Like. I saw the eighth one. It's not like they did anything particularly special other than show fake betrayal. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, that movie made money. So what the hell do I know that? Hey, there's a reason I'm not working at universal Ryan, but Anywho, you could. I I, yeah, I would want to work for hey. Blum. I want to work for Blumhouse. Seems like they have some fun shit over there. Like,
0: yeah, yeah Blumhouse is sick,
1: dude. dude. Like, like, hey, like, yeah, I don't know if the Fantasy Island movie sounds like a good idea or not, but I kind of want to see you pull it off. <laughs> like, let's try. Yeah, <laughs> why not? Like, yeah, like, I mean, I don't know. Can we try like Evil Laverne and Shirley next? Like, let's throw all yes. the TV shows in there. Yes. <laughs> Ooh, Mork and Mindy as a horror movie. It's a horror film. Yeah. So then that way he we don't. An alien, right? yeah, yeah. Exactly. And he and you know when he calls Mark to Orson and you, this is how you get around Robin Williams not being around anymore, R.I.P. Mm. Robin Williams. You you turn it into an evil alien. Yes. Who That's has good-ish. the face of like I don't know Michael Shannon and then just have him go yeah. like Mark to Orson and then he just opens up his jaws and he's got like huge alien teeth, um, yeah, and then tries to eat Mindy and. Then... <laughs> That's Damn. that's the movie. And then also Slasher Happy Days. <laughs> f- yes. Yeah, um uh, Donnie Most loses it.
0: <laughs> Donnie Most <laughs> is, he is the most and he fucking goes crazy.
1: You know what, Richie, you've got he- two problems. You're too nice a guy and also you're a slow runner when it comes to evading a killer Donnie Most. But anyway, some
0: good pitches on this. Oh, dude, Those I some I, good ideas.
1: You know what? I think we could take all of our ideas to Jonathan Shields Company, which I'm sure still exists. <laughs> like, it, if oh, yeah. if they could bring back Orion Pictures, they can yes. bring back Jonathan Shield Productions. I think this is. I, I, there's a couple of studios I want to be reborn somehow. One of them's RKO because I think it has the coolest logo of all the studios. Carpet, yeah, it's yeah, so cool. yeah. It's just like a, it's a radio tower going bleep, bleep, bleep. Yeah, <laughs> we awesome. don't really know what we're doing, <laughs> but it looks cool, right? Hey, look, let, look, we'll give, we'll give, a bunch of money to Orson here, he'll fuck up, but then we're going to give little money to Val Luton and he's going to make amazing horror movies. Either way, we kind of win in the long run,
2: guys. Either
1: way? <laughs> that's when, that's when we're they still threw, legendary? Yeah, and that's when oh, they threw George Schaefer out. <laughs> get like, the fuck out of here. You, you can't, you, you, you're you high. <laughs>
0: Um, God, George.
1: but the other one was orion pictures like i always thought like you should bring back orion there's no reason why you can't create a label for it and they did and they made bill and Ted three and it was great um yeah so but these guys haven't started shields pictures yet they're just working on the um on cheapy poverty row rest westerns of any kind they can get their hands on at one point emil meets his wife at some point and I, i'm only bringing that up because something that happens to her <laughs> Later in this in this montage of events is funny to me, um, but they start crashing all the best parties, and yeah. Shields hits upon the idea. Well, like if I get into a poker game with Harry Pebble over there, I can, I I could probably like coax my way into a job and whatnot. So they scrounge up a hundred bucks to give to Jonathan to go play poker, and f- because this is from Fred's perspective. We see them waiting outside for Jonathan to come back outside. He acknowledges that he's not only not won money, but he's lost (laughs) (laughs) $6,351. And then we cut to Perry Pebble's office, which is the one thing that I will say about this film that it's not, it doesn't irk me, but I find it interesting is that because it's from different perspectives, it doesn't, run consistently with keeping with the person who's telling the story in their perspective No, it, <laughs> um, it, it does it does shift itself a little bit whereas um, citizen kane generally keeps close continuity to it right, um, yes. and and most films today that use this trick do pretty much stick to that guideline unless they're a lot
2: stricter
1: yeah unless they've got like a major scene where they just can't avoid it now right. Logically, I can't argue that this has right to exist because Harry Pebble is there in the room with them.
0: It's true; they're sort—he's sort of also talking with them. Yeah. So. so then,
1: like Fred's telling his story, and then Harry's just like, "Well, hold on. Now this is where I come in." So, like, short of Quentin Tarantino having Kurt Russell go, like, "That's a fucking lie." <laughs> <laughs> That's a fucking lie. <laughs> you liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Oh. Please tell me you did. <laughs> That I love, I love that so, one interruption. I'm glad it's just the one, <laughs> and then yeah, him talking about like, well, this is what it's like to make westerns in Italy, <laughs> which, <laughs> which we'll talk about a little bit after we're done here. But he loses the money, so he goes to Pebble, and Pebble's just like, look, I mean, what are you gonna do? And then Shields basically coaxes his way into be like, look, the way I'll pay off my debt is I'll make a bunch of movies for you and you could take it out of my salary. So it's like, look, I broke a bunch of dishes at your restaurant here or didn't pay the check on my food. So I'll wash the dishes until my check's been paid. But for movies.
0: <laughs> you're going to see how good of a dishwasher I am. right? Like, and then
1: you're going to hire me. Ryan, we've been going about this all wrong. <laughs>
0: Why? Well, I mean, it's kind of brilliant. He's kind of a hustle. I mean, he's like hustling his way in there. Here, which is pretty here,
1: cool. The only reason we can't accomplish this same job right now is because COVID has made poker parties illegal. It's true. <laughs> yeah, Once we they ch- open up though. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you know, so I'll have to. We'll get you in there because you're a little bit more slick, and I'll just be the Carl Reiner of the operation, wearing a fun old hat, peeling an orange. <laughs> <laughs> My doctor says Fuck I need yeah. vitamins. <laughs> I- <laughs> I like the and then I'll just play random people that you can yell at to prove that you're powerful. <laughs> like, listen, get out of
0: my face. Yes, Damn, this guy, yes, Mr. Johnson. Swiss. Like wow, he's respected.
1: Is that the same guy that keeps walking by? Oh, no, wait, no, wait.
0: Does he have a mustache on now?
1: What, no, Jason Bloom, that's impossible. It can't be the same no, guy. No, no, no no, 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 no,
0: it's a different guy. A different guy. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's the same. I nope. Mean, who are you? What's happening? Who are you guys?
1: Ryan, he found us out. Quick, the taser. <laughs> we
0: just tase him. Yeah. Run away. We're like, well, yeah, I could
1: have gone better. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we're running. going to a, we're going to jail for assault. <laughs> Assaulting Jason Blum. Jason Blum or <laughs> any of the <laughs> insert funny producer here. <laughs> um, insert guy. Yeah, in insert. Insert person, not Kevin Feige, because he seems litigious. (laughs) Right. I'm not going to fuck with him. But props to Shields. This gag works. This gag works. He puts him to work and also he cancels the debt. (laughs) So he's just like, no, 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 no. I would have given you the job anyway because your father gave me my first job. I clearly didn't love him enough to show him up to his funeral, but he did give me my first job, so I would at least help out his son. So again, establishing the complicated part of Harry's past that Harry or that of the shields past that Jonathan has to overcome. So Harry gives him this work and I wrote this down for um, as I went through the notes. Make sure I get this. Well, first of all, I wanted to bring this up. The club that they play poker at is called Club Topaz. And it it wouldn't be a reference to anything in the immediate present for this time, but Hitchcock ends up making a movie called Topaz, and there's a Hitchcock surrogate in here. So I'm just like, it's not a good connection, but that's just funny for me. (laughs) I'm there. It's kind of like pointless, but I liked it. Um, But anyway, he gets the job, and then they celebrate on the beach, and that's where he also draws in the sand the logo for, (laughs) which is based on like a family crest. Yeah, it's like based on his family crest or something. He sees it on something in the house. And he forms it in the sand, and like which we've all done. We've all gone to the beach and drawn our own production logos in the sand. It's yeah, a
0: production logo. Also, it's a really, really good in the in the movie. Like the design of it is like really amazing.
1: How how did he do this? The <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. He's like an artist. This... I noticed that. think like this is like two. That's like two nice logos. My father taught me two things: how to win in the business world, and also technique with rocks that have been sitting near the ocean for years. <laughs>
0: Sand painting. Look. Like those monks that draw that, those beautiful sand designs, and then I mess it up afterwards to show the impermanence of life.
1: This is my statement to the world. Much like my pictures, this sand painting will be nothing within minutes. But I'll know, and I'll have the money of the sand. (laughs) Now the allegory just falls apart. (laughs)
0: They're like, okay. So, how do we.
1: He he He, he looks up and he's just like, "Look, I just like drawing in the fucking sand." (laughs) Let me have this. (laughs) Look, I I'm clearly not going to be interested in relationships that are healthy for me. I'm clearly not going to be able to hold on to a friend in the goddamn world. Let me have my sand drawings.
0: (laughs) Have my sand drawings. Okay. Anyway, these are my friends. (laughs) Let me tell you,
1: (laughs) the sand, sand is my friend. Um, they're still on the beach. He's he's expressing his love of sand drawings, but really, he's he's unloading all the ideas he's gonna have. And then he sees that Fred and his fiance or whatever are in love and whatnot. Yeah, and he pulls out a ring that he bought for him. Yeah, <laughs> which which you know this old, you, this age old story. When you want to get married, you ask your best friend to buy an engagement ring for you. <laughs> have your friend
0: slash business or, partner get in, get involved.
1: Yeah. Yeah, or specifically, you didn't even consult your friend. Your friend just made this decision for you. <laughs>
0: yeah, he kind of just threw him in there. Yeah, he's just like,
1: look, the only way this business proposition is going to work is if you two get married because somebody's got to be happy because I'm going to be busy drawing sand and being a sad sap. <laughs> and so <laughs> here's this ring, <laughs> and and then her her response is to kiss him first before then making out with Fred on the beach. <laughs> So like it's, a
0: weird it's like dog.
1: it's like Kirk Douglas Prima Nocta. <laughs> you, you get you get the kiss of your best friend's girl, then she makes out with her husband and you watch on the beach while drawing sand doodles. <laughs> like now little... this is the brave heart. This is the brave heart we deserve. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: is it's a little creepy. It's very allied, know, not, though.
1: yeah Yeah, exactly very la you know like this is how you do it and then you defeat the manson clan later on you know that's that's how it (laughs) that's every every la story ends with you defeating the manson clan that's that's the new rule now that was set uh, as uh, in accordance with the once upon a time in hollywood law of 19 (laughs) 1969 (laughs) to 1970 um Anyway, they they make out on the beach and Kirk Douglas continues his sand drawings going, like, someday I'll be a master at this. Um, and they go through the gamut and be like, apparently he made 11 pictures for Harry Pebble, three uh, who... Uh, Fred directed the third one and then would go on to direct five more. He makes, up the, he makes the point that they aren't picture makers or secondhand dealers. So these are people who are learning the craft as they go along. So they're actually kind of... The, the modern day equivalent we have is, you know, film school students go to film school, learn the craft, learn how to make a movie, then experiment by making shorts or a feature, right. then keep working up that ladder. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, the the rules on that have changed because art has become democratized, which is both a blessing and a curse, depending on how you look at it. Um, I look at it as a blessing because I can do a podcast with you right now. Right. Um, And not have to work for KBCO, Um, who would not let me do this show, even if I (laughs) begged. (laughs) Uh, Guys, you're not, But you're not soft rock. Yeah, I know. I'm dork rock. (laughs) No, I'm not, but I can be if you want me to. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's been good living with you, huh? huh?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just play a little bit of soft rock at the beginning, and you're like, okay, it's a soft rock show, and then you go into your got yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah see, now yeah. here's a
1: little bit about the bad and the beautiful. But first, REM. If you believe <laughs> they put a man on the moon, <laughs> they they're like, all right, I guess we can get behind it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, he talks a little bit too much for five minutes, but then he plays REM. I like it. <laughs> uh, so then they, uh, right off the bat here, so they get assigned a horror picture called nice. The Doom of the Catmen. Now. First of all, great title for a movie that I do want to see. But more importantly, Ryan, how familiar are you with Val Luton?
0: I am somewhat familiar. I've seen um, Cat People. I've seen that. Okay. So that's kind of like the movie that that's kind of like it's supposed to be like they're referencing that movie. I think it's kind of like I I would assume that's Mm -hmm. kind of the take.
1: Now. Uh, As discussed um, in the yet to be released haunting episode, you'll have people will have heard it by the time they're hearing this. We're not going to go fully into Val Luton here because in order to fully talk about Val Luton, I've got to talk about one of his movies. And if you want more information on Val Luton, you need to go to the secret history of Hollywood podcast and listen to the Val Luton series shadows where Adam Roach, who has been on Shamley before will walk you through the Luton saga not just the films he produced, but the man himself, because the man himself had a very inspirational backstory. And here, we are clearly drawing upon Val Luton's innovations at RKO. Right. The one, th- the one thing that I can bring up in terms of his history is that Val Luton was brought on to work in the RKO horror, like low-budget horror unit. And Val Luton came upon the innovation of, well, I don't have to show a cat people. I can allude to cat people right. and he made cat people and it's fucking great. And it then is. he made, and then he has the audacity to allow Robert rise to make curse of the cat people, which barely has anything to do with, right. <laughs> with cat people. <laughs> um, that, that one's great. And then the leopard man, which does have a leopard and it does have a really violent death behind a door that you don't really see except for blood but it's also about horror of the mind there you go. and then also one that's going to be, uh, there's a couple that are be coming out through Warner archive, but a few of them are available on shout fact Scream factory and then cat people's available on criterion, um, which also has the Martin yeah. Scorsese produced doc on Val Luton. Oh God, Marty
0: dude, he's always there. Yeah.
1: I, I told you was, and not only is it illegal, but they got, to make one feature film once a year, one feature film once a year to talk about a figure that nobody's heard about in the last 50 years. Like, so like this, this one time I did Ilya Kazan, next one I did Val Luton. And then at some point, maybe I'll just end up doing one on myself to complete the meta cycle. They just talk <laughs> about like here, we're going to do a documentary about how many times I've talked about old movies. And then it's just going to all collapse in on itself. And then I'll have George Lucas do special effects where everything just collides into one big explosion. Um, the and one then, thing. Yeah. And I'll be just, Everybody's
0: mind explodes.
1: Yeah. and Everybody's mind explodes. And that's when cinema dies. So, Cause if, <laughs> if, if, if this is where cinema has gone, I'm going to be the one to give it a mercy killing.
0: <laughs> this is the end of cinema. <laughs> all of this coming together.
1: If, if I can't have the Irishman done that, more Paramount pictures, then I, then nobody will have access to movies anymore. It's done. It's done. I'm, I'm fucking yeah, done. It. Sure. At two Iron Man. <laughs> <laughs> at, two, um, at two Iron Man. <laughs> it's a fitting way to go. Yeah, you know, I mean, given given how much people try to pit Marty against Marvel these days, like.
0: Like <laughs> so, Marty. Yeah, they're always going to egg him on.
1: Yeah, talk I, more yeah, shit about it. yeah. And it's just like and he's look, like, guys. Look, all right. He's like, look, guys. If you fun fact, if you look back in my history, I clearly like the first Spider-Man. I don't have a problem with Marvel. I have a problem with the factory mentality that is coming out and not uh about the individuality that can be done through proper distribution techniques within right. cinemas and theaters um so go fuck yourselves and then he can just drop the mic and leave and then he can come Somebody hang out, with... chill fuck yeah. out yeah and then he can come hang out with us and talk about bad and the beautiful for a part two <laughs> <laughs> um, that'd be great um <laughs> i think i think we'll get him on yeah welcome to yesterday here Ballyhoo review i'm zach with me is ryan johnson and some guy named Martin Scorsese. And Martin
0: Scorsese. So, so Marty, not, not the better filmmaker of the. Three yeah. Of us, but, yeah so, you know. so
1: Martin, what movies have you made? Probably short films, I'm assuming.
0: <laughs> so can you can you introduce yourself a little bit? And talk about what we've done. Where can we find your work? Where can we, do you have like, do we have like, YouTube or what's?
1: Do you do you have a TikTok?
0: You on TikTok? What's your handle?
1: <laughs> at Cinema Guy one two three four.
0: <laughs> at Cinema at M Score
1: Scorsese with a Z at the at the end. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's trying uh, to be cool. hip, so he can hang I'll out. Look with you his, up. He can hang out with his daughter. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I just wanted to like me. Yeah. <laughs> and not troll me with Marvel wrapping paper at Christmas. She
0: keeps making. She keeps making fun of me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> It's almost as if though she's a kid and their kids are gonna do that. <laughs> um, anyway, though, Doom of the Cat Men, they're gonna make this horror picture. It's gonna have obviously Cat Men in it, right? That's the assumption cat that you'd have, right? And they even showed these amazing cat suits. Where I don't think they're gonna make a. Ho- I think they're gonna make a horror movie, Ryan. But I don't think they're gonna make the horror movie they think they're gonna make.
0: Not gonna be scary.
1: They're gonna make a John Waters horror movie. Is what they're gonna make. Right
0: yeah they're looking i love that's a great scene by the way Just like with the wardrobe guy and they're sitting there he's got the cigarette in his mouth and like they're just sitting there like not
1: talking you you could tell that vincent minnelli had fun with that scene because he's drawing off of some costume design experiences to be like look just sell this sell this shit to them (laughs) right and i will say that that cutaway before they transition into the screening room that dead stare that um Sullivan and Douglas are giving is one of the best long takes I've ever seen of just Minnelli has the pre- frame of mind to just hold on that.
0: Like yeah, it's kind of
1: lovely. That's, yeah. that's the one thing that I want to bring up about the melodrama in this film and like kind of like the way it weaves between its comedy and its drama, you know, mm-hmm. melodrama has a negative connotation to it. Um, right. more, more recently, when you talk about star Wars prequels, you talk about them as cheap melodrama um, right. which is wrong, but uh, you're the, the term melodrama kind of gets thrown under the bus and it's not a negative mm-hmm. thing. In fact, right. the primary dramas that you see come out of the studio system even today are melodramas. Um, what Manelli does here is really kind of play into the satire of Hollywood as the differentiation between it and a typical melodrama so he finds an angle Manelli's not stupid he's gonna find an angle that he can tap into and make it the central um emotional core of his film so that he can play with the ups and downs um yep. and we're gonna get one of those one of those moments here because they go to the screening room and they're going like well we're fucked like <laughs> pebble gave us the absolute worst you know piece project of it's
0: yeah. gonna be yeah it's gonna be a terrible cheesy bad horror movie and they're like yeah like, how are we gonna make this good at all like and, this is gonna be
1: terrible and you'll see i i know you i know you saw this immediately because this is something that can pop on the light bulb of any filmmaker <laughs> he turns off the lights <laughs> and starts explaining like we don't need to see the cat people we can just show them in the dark right. And Minnelli, right, right. and Manelli, I love when people double down on their shit, and Manelli doubles down on what they're talking about by visually cueing the audience in right right um, you Now, it's 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 a uh, consider the consideration that some would give it is just like, well, that's cheesy, that's you know hackneyed and whatnot. I'd argue perfect yeah because I loved it. shields is a showman. He is a yeah. showman producer, first and foremost. He is going to show um, uh, Emil how this is going to work. He's going to give him a presentation. He's pitching him. He's like a, not a snake oil salesman. He's a movie producer. He's a, he's a producer yeah. pitching a project. And so yeah. they decide, we're going to make this movie in all shadows where you don't see the actual cat people, but you see like glaring eyes and whatnot, which is clearly the Val Luton angle on this. Um, right they make the picture they hide it from pebble <laughs> which is uh f- yeah
0: they sneak the reels out of the of the studio yeah. right to Wh- the screen or into the theater
1: which by the way we also we always talk about like you know well save film and you know like every everybody should you know learn some things from the old timers and i absolutely agree with that however it's got to be super simple now to just you know grab a dcp and bring it up to a a projector room
0: you literally just send people an email like a link and it's like here's my movie
1: yeah (laughs) yeah exactly like it's the one thing where i'm just like it's kind of a relief to know that there is the the equation of possibly losing a can of film is out the door with this (laughs) so you're just like well at least i won't lose a can of film Um, now I've just got to make sure that I don't put my film near any magnets and we'll be all set or near magneto men. If I can, if I just got to avoid Ian McKellen and Michael Fassbender and I'll be totally fine. That's hard to do. Yeah. They're always around my sets. It's fucking weird. They're always
0: around (laughs) me. And when they are around, I can't resist. So I'm like, Oh shit, I have to go talk to him. Zach, why don't you let us see your
1: camera? He's just like, Zach, why don't you let us see your camera? No, no, Ian, you're, you're, I'm cool.
0: (laughs) No, no, I got to I got a hard drive on me. I can't. No, I can't do
1: this. Michael. Is Michael I going to work? <laughs> Ian's, he, Ian's just like, oh, my God. Oh, no. Michael's getting naked again for the fans of shame. Why don't you all just turn around and look at that while I go over to this camera? Ian, stop it.
0: <laughs> Ian? You can't distract us again,
1: God. Ian, that. You, you, you having been the greatest wizard of all time doesn't excuse your shitty behavior right now.
0: <laughs> Being a real dick. Ian.
1: Yeah, more like the dickiest wizard ever. <laughs> Um
0: <laughs> Yeah, so they make well, real them, quick I was going to yeah, say
1: Yeah.
0: just about that scene. I love in that scene um he um shields Kirk Douglas he like puts his feet up and he takes kicks his shoes off. Mm-hmm. He's like all right. He's like all right, they're trying to figure out what to do. and He kicks his shoes and it's a thing he does. A few different times throughout the movie, he like he's in the he's in, like the screening room. Mm-hmm. He takes his shoes off, and I like it's like this weird thing it, that it's he his, does. But, it's
1: like, his it's his quirk. It's how he gets like his his idea his idea factory working like his, in his
0: head. It's like yeah. his thinking like cap. Yeah, he like, takes his shoes. Off.
1: <laughs> yeah, which actually, it's I fun. love that. Did you notice there were shots in the screening room that reminded me of uh, how Scorsese shoots the screening room in The Aviator.
0: Mm, that's right i haven't seen aviator in a long time so i can't specifically so, remember
1: like I, but so, yeah I mean, yeah there's yeah. not a lot of shots in it because obviously the aviator is dealing with a whole lot of shit but right. some of the primary scenes with howard hughes's ocd you know mm-hmm. scorsese deals with a dead-on frame on him for the most part but there are like angles on it where he yeah. has leo slouched in his chair in kind of like a kirk douglas fashion that, yeah with a yeah, yeah, and though there's a commentary on that DVD slash Blu-ray that I've never heard. I almost kind of want to pop it in this week and see if that's... he <laughs> says anything about it. Yeah, just be like, you know... Like, yeah, and, then, and then we shot we stole this from The Bad and the Beautiful, and then someday two right. idiots are going to talk about it on a podcast.
0: <laughs> be like, and they're oh, finally like... going to put it together.
1: They're <laughs> like, oh, oh my God, he... he... What? <laughs>
0: He knows. we got we to gotta tweet at him. Get him on for part two.
1: The reason I don't like Marvel is because they haven't done an X-Men movie where I can finally allow my true powers of being an X-Men to be revealed to the world. <laughs>
0: That's why I'm pissed. They just haven't had me be a part of it. Yeah,
1: exactly. I've been just tired that they've been at Fox for years. <laughs> um, so they make the film. They get it to the theater. They screen it. They preview it. The crowd rushes out, and they grab their comment cards and go like, and they're right. writing with a curiosity that you don't see anymore in person nope. on Twitter, you do. Right. Twitter. Um, and I mean, I like the mislead on here is that we cut in on a card that says it stinks. <laughs> and then right, yeah. we cut away an to interesting like, mislead. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's a, kind of a weird note. I don't know how I felt about it, but it was, it was fun. It's funny. I think in the grand scheme of the film, it works on its own. It's an odd choice it's it was odd, a little weird it, it's almost yeah. like he's trying for a moment of humor but it doesn't work because paul stewart immediately says one stink but 10 amazing 10 superb 10 stupendous like <laughs> it is kind of odd but i wonder if it's to play in if he's gonna lay into the melodrama he's gonna play the audience like a fiddle as much as he can yeah so maybe that's the case. I don't know. It'd be interesting to to get a more direct answer on it. But regardless, Shields has made it big, quote unquote. And so he, like clearly Harry's not going to forget it, but he's also not going to give Shields too much credit. And so they get their next assignment, and their next assignment is going to be none other than return of the cat people of the men. <laughs> this is like it's it's frustrating but oh before that we did get them going to this house of george lorison the abandoned house of george right. lorison where they go through the house and clearly shields has an attachment to george lorison this actor of silent film and early talkie film clearly. Right. And They it, just kind
0: of break into his like mansion. Yeah. It's like abandoned. Yeah, let's go up there. Go check it out. Yeah, There's it's this
1: old actor. Well, it's condemned. You don't really need to you know, you don't need to worry about it. They just kinda go Yeah.
0: But they kinda of like, let's just roll in.
1: There. Yeah, they're just like, Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, you want to break into an old actor's house, you know, like they're not haunted, you know, actors can't afford to haunt a house. <laughs> yeah. Dead actors especially they to,
0: so they go into his kind of condemned mansion, which is
1: which is decked out to look like a boat inside. And <laughs> yeah.
0: Like this is, cool.
1: this is, it looks eerie too inside. And then they, they meet a gal up there who is clearly Georgia Lorison, but we don't see her right away mm-hmm. and uh, try to get her to come down. She won't come down. She tries to get him to get out and they go, nah, and they kind of leave. But the, the key emotional factor that you take out of this is one, Jonathan remembers Georgia and, is taking note of where she's at at this moment. But two is that you can clearly tell that it seems like Jonathan wasn't really close with his father, but he was kind of close with George in a way that he wasn't with his father. So right. I, I I get the feeling that a lot of his reasonings for doing what he does to Georgia later have to do with his connection to George Loreson, not just because of what the film's telling me, but also with a deep ingrained, like, you know, he could just try to help her out and then move on. But he like really, really, wants to help her um to to the point where it goes beyond anything romantic like it literally Mm -hmm. becomes like trying to save a life in the strange weird way so again they get their they get their next assignment and their next assignment is and i lied about it is the son of the cat men and they both right yeah yeah, and they and they throw their hands up in the air and go like well shit we're just gonna be like that Val Luton fella over at RKO forever. <laughs> you know he made cat people. We made cat men. How many times are we God gonna have to keep fighting it. each other? He makes body snatcher. We make body taker. Like
0: <laughs> body stealer. Yeah, bo- damage
1: Body remover thingamabobber. Yeah, that, uh,
0: that body taker.
1: Yeah, Fred. That was actually a really clever title, Fred. That, re- body remover thingamabobber. Yeah, looks great on a poster. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so. They're just like, well, shit. We're just gonna be in this rut forever. And he's like, no, 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 because I have the faraway mountain. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a property that nobody else could make. Right now, we're moving from Val Luton into David O'Selznick. Um, right. Now it would be very easy for me to bring up the David O'Selznick impression, and there's absolutely no reason that I shouldn't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> This the David O'Selznick and I have a fun history where I make fun of him for doing all those speed pep pills and uh, him making crazy decisions like wanting a giant smoky R at the end of Rebecca because that's still the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Just have it rise up, rise up. No, 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 David, David, I'm not going to fucking do that because I can tell that you're jumping up and down like the rate of five men who dug 10 tons of cocaine and you've got to fucking stop it. (laughs) that's not, not a bunch he, of drugs i there. i got the pillowcase made exactly for this it's elegant it's unique and you're not going to fucking ruin the rest of this movie you've already interfered a fucking enough. <laughs> <laughs> um but so this is basically david O. Selznick making gone with the wind this is his push through now the difference is we're showing it through the perspective of a director who's come up with this idea and made all these notes and prepared, done all this preparation and it's so, his
0: idea. It's his kind of passion project. Exactly. The director. The yeah. Crowd, and, yeah.
1: and all Shield is going to do is be like the go-between and be like, you know, I'll put my my career on the line to get this done. Mm-hmm. And through finagling with Harry Pebble, they Harry Pebble basically tells him like, I'm doing this because everybody tells me that I need you more than you need me. And so if you don't do it, you'll be suspended. So it's just like, you're on suspension if you don't make an inevitable failure. So right, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, because you had the balls to say that out loud. <laughs> and so... <laughs> So I'm just like, this is must. This must be how DC movies are made. <laughs> just, this is wow, this must be how they make all the DC movies. God, I feel bad for Zack Snyder. Jesus,
0: <laughs> just, keep putting him in this position. Yeah,
1: this this seems irresponsible of the studio and also in, inhumane and cruel. <laughs> like,
0: this is really mean.
1: Yeah, that's this is terrible. Um, but hey, it's okay. He'll get a D, he'll get a Snyder cut, and everything will be okay. Um, and then, yeah, we get it's though fun. we're about to introduce somebody here though, Ryan. He's the greatest. He's the greatest character in the movie. Not, not really. He's, he's the one everybody loves. You can't get enough of him because they're going through casting the lead role in this movie. Oh, yeah. And they start thinking like, who could we actually get that to name? And of course, you can't cast the lead of the Faraway Mountain unless it's, much like Gable has to play Rhett Butler only Victor mm-hmm. Rivera alias Gaucho can Gaucho. play can play the lead role in the Faraway Mountain everybody loves Gaucho it's it, yeah everybody loves Gaucho it's it's the one the only Gaucho say that's me and then everybody applauds because this <laughs> it's weird how this character becomes a throughline for people <laughs> he's kind of yeah. like he, it's. i'm kind of astounded by it we'll talk about it as it goes on but they get him by trying to seduce him with a woman who dances with him which you know that run, runs into that territory of today of just like using women for you know different advancements in hollywood sure like, se- like securing yeah. services it's it's seedy it's terrible um but but they nice. get him back to his house Kirk Douglas has been drinking this entire time and he passes out because he's not a good drinker. <laughs> like, like he, he He's like literally tossed onto the couch and he goes and gaucho, God bless his heart is just like, well, why did you do? did you do all the, you know, dog a pony show here, man? Like I'm a, I'm an actor. If I like the script, I'll do it. If I don't like the script, I won't do it. <laughs> and then they end the scene with him reading it while the lady they brought in to coax him just starts dancing by herself <laughs> that's
0: right yeah it's just like a weird it's such a weird scene it's weird but it's but great it,
1: it's it's kind of amazing like it's an amazing it like it's a it's a an amazingly hopeful belief that talent triumphs over just like money or influence like it's an idealism inside of this movie that has a cynical edge to it. So it's
0: right. It, it is like subverts that, that expectation that you think would happen. Exactly.
1: It's almost like he gets to have his cake and eat it too. So Manelli's one of the few mm-hmm. people who's ever able to do this. Um, yeah. But so they, they secure gaucho Fred Emil waits to hear shields. Give the go ahead shields gives the go ahead and then reveals that, Oh no we're going to have a different director doing it. Von Elstein. Yeah. Crushes. crushes, Brutal. Crushes Fred. Basically,
0: he takes the movie from him. He's like, your baby that you brought to me, you were wanted to direct it. Like, okay, we got, we're getting it made. It's going to get made, but, uh, you're not going to direct it. It's basically what he says. <laughs> it's and, like, you'll be with me though. We'll you on set. You know, you'll be my assistant. You know, we'll help out. You'll be the assistant to the director. Exactly.
1: Fred. It's like somebody right. telling. A it's like somebody we're telling Quentin Tarantino, "Look, you made Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You wrote the script. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Now we're gonna let Greta Gerwig direct it. What? what?
0: <laughs> now we're gonna let somebody else is gonna do it. Though.
1: Yeah, but it's like it's be better. Although now I'm kind of wondering what Greta Gerwig would do with that movie. <laughs> be different. It'd be much sweeter. Yeah, it'd be although that movie's pretty sweet though it is kind yeah. of sweet so it would just be i think it would just be less uh aesthetic like it would be much more uh indie vibe like even more indie vibe than quentin shoots like it would be right. like mumblecoreish, ish um which that would be interesting for the manson scene at the end um but anyway um they bring in von elstein um and he's kind of like a he's kind of like a uh Von Stroheim surrogate like he's kind of like a right. generalized German director type yes um and he it, it, this crushes Emil, and then they cut away that Emil never works with him again and like I'm not
0: that was a yeah, yeah that was their breakup they <laughs> broke up
1: but Harry Pebble's like now 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 to be fair you went on and worked on your own and you won all these Oscars with her and they point to Georgia Lorison. So like so really, Jonathan Shields did a lot for you. Like yeah. Like so, stop being an ungrateful motherfucker. <laughs> this is like he set and, him up. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then he sets his guilt trip hands on. Like, and now let's talk about you, Georgia. You know, Georgia's on my mind. What's on your mm-hmm. mind, Georgia?
0: <laughs> yeah. Now we shift. Yeah. So now now we like shift. okay. We just heard um, Fred Emile's story, and now we're gonna go into. A,
1: and Hers, we actually kind of, we do get a cool transition within that where she's on a set for an AMIL production. Right. And she asks to leave early because the SHIELD studio is casting a bit part. She gets there with the help of her agent Gus, who is kind of like the sad sap agent of all time. But then she goes into Shield's office, and we now see that Harry Pebble has moved on to Shields Studios with Shields. So Mm -hmm. he was able to coax him away. And uh, Shields picks Georgia pretty much right away. So obviously he recognizes her. Gets her this bit part where she has to say the line, read any good books lately? (laughs) (laughs) And they cut. And the director looks like it's going to be a wrap. And he says, hold on, hold on, hold on a minute. And then he goes, uh, up to her, gives her a little direction, whisper, whisper, whisper. And then she just says it slightly differently, (laughs) (laughs) like subtle touch, but clearly it was exactly what he wanted. Um, And so, uh, we cut back to the eve the late evening she shows up back to her apartment drunk mm-hmm. very despondent uh and she opens the door and uh-oh somebody's already in there and it's jonathan, it's, uh, it's jonathan shields and he is I, look i'm just gonna say this up front <laughs> we have a lot of tropes in movies where men or women just kind of show up in people's houses to do that whole light, that light lamp trick. Here we go. In a movie, in a movie about Hollywood, even though he doesn't do anything sinister here, the initial shot of that is like unnerving. It is. (laughs) And it's good because he sets up some suspense because you do Mm -hmm. kind of wonder like, well, what are you doing here? (laughs) Like, do you really care about this bit player? Like there's no, there's no actual reason for you to be wanting to do this, but he, you know, he, whatever. He basically asks her, why are you a washed up drunk? (laughs) Because she basically isn't, she is just, she did not have a good relationship with her father. She is clearly trying to follow in his footsteps though. And she is not succeeding at it. And, Jonathan just lays into her about like, you need to be able to be better than your father. You need to look up there and you need to be able to do this to your father's portrait. And he starts drawing a mustache. And that was actually a callback from the beginning of the movie where they draw, she draws a mustache on the shield image of Shields, the
0: shield logo. Yeah.
1: The shield logo. And so this idea of being, being able to look at the person that causes you pain and put some humor on them, which yeah has a lot of, different connotations depending on how a director chooses to address that subject thematically here. Mm-hmm. He's using it as a tool to motivate her because shields, isn't really romantically interested in her. Although no. I think he uses the fact that she's attracted to him, to his advantage. Um, he does. Yes. To yes. the, to the point, cause his goal is to mold the perfect actress, which is something that Selznick did a lot. Um, mm-hmm. One of arguably one of his greatest successes with this is also the one that I personally feel is the one he's drawing on the most. Um, Jennifer Jones, who would end up becoming David O. Selznick's wife. Um, mm. Now, uh, there's also a, a factor of it that can be led into John Barrymore having a kid, like Diana Barrymore. Right. Um, had a had a career that launched the same year of her father's death. Some people also argue that Laurison has elements of Judy Garland in it. I'm gonna go with Jennifer right. Jones, um, but a satirized version of Jennifer Jones because Jennifer Jones. I'll be perfectly frank. I don't think she was a great actress at all. I think she's kind of uh, sure. she's she's fine in certain things, but she is not anything particularly special. I'm obviously looking at it from that Jones point of view because the Selznick connection is there, but it really is the idea of this actress that clearly everybody sees is not that talented. And yet he's going to believe in her so much that she's going to end up Mm -hmm. becoming the greatest star ever. And we don't really have to see evidence of it because her performing on screen is irrelevant. Her being Lana Turner is the more important part of this. Um, Right. And Lana Turner, I want to talk about her for a second. She was a very, she's a very iconic look girl of the era, known for being a sweater girl above all things. But um, she has a lot of legacy attached to her, both in the positive and the negative. Um, Mm -hmm. She starred in films like Johnny Eager, uh, the 41 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, She was eventually uh, in a very, very strong performance in The Postman Always Rings Twice, um, mm-hmm. then um, after Bad and the Beautiful she does Peyton Place but uh, in 1958 uh, after this film that comes out uh, her daughter stabbed um, her lover Johnny St- Stompantano to death oh, in wow. their home during a domestic struggle and then the Whoa. film that she does after this ended up being this amazing critical success so she's had this kind of weird fluctuation throughout her life but there's a lot of people who told Manelli that she would not be able to do this film. And so he basically encouraged her by saying like anybody who has to if they have to if we have to do a retake on your scenes, it's not gonna be your fault. And just basically yeah. giving her some confidence, right. instilling some confidence mm-hmm. in her to be like, Look, 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 look. It's gonna be the gaffer's fucking fault. And I'll yell at him later. <laughs> then he turns to the gaffer and he goes, wink. But he <laughs> he goes, it's <laughs> for you, it's all good. So you just go out there and you give the best performance you can. And if not, I'll fire that fucking gaffer. Wink. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we have to do it again. It's not your fault, though. Yeah. It's not your fault. Yeah. Wink. Somebody else. The, the camera was out of focus. It's yeah. Fine.
1: Exactly. It has nothing to do with anything uh, apart from that. And so the way her trajectory through this, like. First of all, the stu- the other people in the studio don't believe in her. Um right. we get the kind of Leo G. Carroll character who's supposed to be the Hitchcock surrogate going like she can't act, she can't fucking do anything. <laughs> <laughs> like what? this is fucking ridiculous. And but Jonathan still believes in her, her agent still believes in her. <laughs> they have yep. this scene where they're like, You're gonna get the part and she's just and the agent starts crying, not her. <laughs> Because, yeah, the agent's like having yeah, a meltdown. He's so like, I'm happy. just, a, I'm just an emotional human being. And uh, <laughs> but she's more just like, why? Clearly, they fucking hate me. Why? And it, and it's, it's almost like she's peer pressured into being an actress, even though it's the thing that she wants. Like it's a, it's an interesting right. line of like, I like how Lana Turner plays it realistically, where mm-hmm. just because you've gotten your wish doesn't mean you understand quite clearly how you got it. <laughs> Um, right
0: and she's also scared of um she's it's like afraid of success kind of thing you know which which she kind of has which i think is interesting they sort of touch on in that yeah it's like it's like she's she gets like these opportunities and she's afraid of like the pressure that comes with that she's afraid of like fucking that up and like that ends up being kind of you know a thing that comes up exactly storyline
1: yeah and she (laughs) and he has to keep going like don't worry don't worry don't worry don't drink but don't worry (laughs) don't don't, no, drink, no, but don't no, worry. Booze bad. Acting aces. And <laughs> acting
0: <laughs> putting work in the your craft. Yes. Yeah.
1: Do if, that. if you if you drink any more booze, you'll only be the bad, but not the beautiful. And then everybody just claps at that stupid joke. And then we get <laughs> <laughs> they get to they're getting ready for production. Everything's getting ready, and we get. Uh, A scene where he tells her to go to Palm Springs for a week and to kind of just chill out before they start filming. And Mm -hmm. um, she ends up being, like, compelled to go back to the set. She feels, like, the nerve and the anxiety. She disappears on the first day of filming. And everybody freaks out. (laughs) She doesn't show. Yeah. Yeah. First day. And he's just like, you know what? we got to recast this role. Uh, And so they're looking to recast the role. Jonathan's kind of puzzling over it and he overhears like, well, anybody will tell you that she's no good. Like her janitor says that when she goes on suicidal spells, she'll lock herself in the room for days at a time. And that's when he freaks out and goes like, Oh my God, (laughs) I left a potentially suicidal person with a drinking problem alone. (laughs) And so he goes up to the apartment and shakes her out of this discouragement and then we get the scene with the phone which ends up being the motif um throughout the entirety of the film where he get, he calls up harry to reassure her them that we don't need this replacement actress we got her he can tell that she's picked up the phone on the other end because that's how phones used to work that way guys if right. your lines were connected in such a way like i mean and it, actually like it, it sounds like a joke but actually this isn't something that we necessarily had to deal with but you would pick up a landline phone and that era it would be connected to the other end so you could hear from the other room you could listen yeah, yeah. You could hear. But, but Kirk Douglas has super hearing where he's just like I heard a click don't worry Harry she's gonna kick ass and you just need to stop being a penny pinching miser wink and then when he hears that she's shut off the phone he says this phrase it's okay Harry I know how to handle her <laughs> Right, which has a lot of loaded thoughts in my head, but my big one was more just like, it's interesting that that's the one thing he didn't want her to hear. Because in a movie Mm -hmm. that is so honest, it's interesting that he's trying to hide so much from her to create what illusion I don't understand. But what is clear is, is that he clearly cares enough about her being the daughter of one of his heroes that he's not going to disillusioned her too much mm-hmm. so she makes oh. the, yeah so she makes the movie it wraps it's a huge success in the middle of filming a girl named lila who's been hanging out with gaucho uh is an extra yeah, in this movie. Gonna, yeah played by elaine gonna, stewart together. and she <laughs> this gal does not understand how life works <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't understand what do, being an extra is going to do for her career, and Gaucho, because Gaucho's the shit, he goes, "Well, you don't understand. You need to, you know, be an extra in order to work your way up through the ranks and have people notice you, and also to gain more experience in front of the camera because the camera acting is different from theatrical acting." And mm-hmm. then, like, and then Gaucho starts, you know, going into his film school spiel that would have gotten him a great professorship at USC in the <laughs> '70s, <laughs> uh-huh. if if only. Um, And then meanwhile, Lila notices um, Shields and uh, Georgia having an intimate moment. And she gets the idea. We'll say, if I sleep with the lead producer, then I'll be a star. And Mm -hmm. what's what's interesting is that we're going to find out is is that Shields does not see it that way at all. Uh, Very specific terms. They have the rap party. She's upset to find that Shields is not With the party She's not he's not among the party yeah. So she brings this rather large Bottle of champagne over to his house Like it looks like it's bigger than her hands And <laughs> um, like 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 not even like I'm talking like This is like a magnum, Like like a magnum size of it Like I don't what think I've ever with that? Yeah I, I mean you know Like Hollywood party stuff <laughs> Things were,
0: it's a whole different level.
1: Look, look, we didn't we don't have those access keys yet, Ryan. We don't get to see what goes on at those parties like that. What they're I doing. I don't get
0: off. to see those giant champagne bottles.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I hey, listen, Ryan, this is hitch. You're not allowed into the Magnum Opus champagne parties until I tell you to. My ghost will come down and say, Congratulations, you made it into Hollywood. Here's your fucking key, and here's your fucking big ass bottle of booze. Now go to that fucking mansion and party like it's
0: 1975.
1: Uh, They're like, Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hitch ghost. Thanks, Hitch ghost. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome, boo. (laughs) (laughs) Disappears. Yeah, so she rings the doorbell a bunch. He comes down. And he looks despondent, and he's she's trying to be like, "Well, you didn't come to the party, so I brought the party to you." And he kind of tries to play it off, get her out the door. She tries. Yeah, he's to... like
0: not indoor anymore. Not yeah. that the movie's over, the rap party. He's like, "All right, cool, not, <laughs> not into you.
1: Oh yeah, specifically, he he goes into this. Uh, he goes into this spiel about like when the when the movie's over, I get despondent and I become something different. Like a depression werewolf yeah. or something like that. He talks
0: <laughs> about this thing. Yeah, he talks, he talks about it in the first story too with the direct with uh, the director. He talks about how like after they, you finish a movie, you go into this like weird depression thing that he was talking about. And I think that's I don't know. That, that's an interesting like thing that pops well, up a few times.
1: Well, and... let's let's I'll ask this as far as being a creative yourself. When you right. wrapped a project of any kind, whether it's a film, like mm-hmm. do you have that sense of? Okay, the thrill is over, like, because it's not. I would argue it's not completely uncommon. Um,
0: yeah, no, I, I think you definitely do have that for sure. Yeah, after you wrap something, or after, or if you finish maybe like editing a movie and it's done, and maybe you have a screening of it, whether it's at like a festival or you know more just like a local, you know whatever it is, you like screen it, and it sort of feels like after that you're like, and then like after that rushes. Worn off, you sort of are like, man, that that's it. You know what I mean? And then you sort of don't really know what to do. And, and, and that's when you come upon the
1: realization, like, oh yeah, I've got to make another one.
0: I got to do this all over
1: again. <laughs> Wait, you mean I've got to come up with another story? Oh shit! I can't do that again? I thought they just that
0: wasn't that wasn't every that wasn't just they didn't fill the hole. Oh man!
1: Hi, hi, Hitch's Hitch's ghost again. Yeah, you've unfortunately got to make more of these suckers. But then that's when you start trying to connect with other writers who who eliminate one part of the equation, and then all you've got to do is take photographs and build them up as storyboards, and then you just have to tell the actors like, "Look, here's the instruction manual. Now take it." I'm Hitch Ghost. Mm-hmm. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Hitch Ghost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. I'm. 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 I'm saving you a lot of money, and a lot of time, and a lot of frustration that nobody will listen to anymore. <laughs> pre-production, pre-production, pre-production. Um, but so yeah. anyway, he though, but he does become this like pity party werewolf <laughs> because it's yeah, not, he does. It's not the same as what we were discussing just now. He's just like you don't understand, like. I need it. I need film. Like he, yeah. he, can't, he can't function without the power he holds in a production. It's mm-hmm. like the stu- even the daily functions of the studio don't matter to him. He needs the production itself. Yeah. And as she, he's trying to get her out the door. We see that Lila comes down and <laughs> says, "Like I thought, you were, said you were going to get rid of her quick." And right, this is the scene where S.H.I.E.L.D. breaks lorison's heart and distinguishes the fact that sometimes i like cheap (laughs) which is like listen (laughs) this is a hard line to hear without thinking like oh shit this guy's this guy's got a power addiction and if you know as as i expressed to you when i emailed you about the show part of the show is talking about like things you learn from hollywood films of the past even a film this far back in 1952 is addressing the abuse of power. Yeah. But Definitely. now it's, now it's viewpoint on it is a little different, yeah. but it's still on the same trajectory. It's just like, it's almost like it's like a slight 10 degree tur- cur- curve away mm-hmm. from the, the, the line we have down the middle right now on it. And what I find interesting about, Shields is that it doesn't feel monstrous, but it also doesn't feel human either. It's somewhere in the middle of just like, he is completely lost. And mm-hmm. and this is his only way to exercise his power outside of filmmaking, which is disturbing beyond all belief. Uh, sure. And what's more, how it affects... It's funny because Lila, like l- the, the movie portrays Lila to be into it because she knows what she'd be getting out of it. But obviously mm-hmm. you look at a scene like that today and it looks like a projection of ideas that have been distorted and used as excuses throughout the years for terrible behavior um, or the way people right. view it. Um, so the film is not going for that form of like progressiveness, because I don't think it's even fully aware of it. Um, so it's not like... Right. Yeah, it's not the film's fault. Now, however, the interesting part of it is actually how George reacts. Goes off, and this, I will say, out of all the melodrama, the only melodrama that didn't work for me, Ryan, is this driving scene in the ring. Which
0: is <laughs> well, in the car,
1: yeah. yeah. It is too the much. most dramatic interior car shot that yeah. is out of its mind. I love how it looks on its own in the context of this movie. It felt a little off. It kind of reminded me of the haunting where the car looks like it starts driving itself. (laughs) Right. And then (laughs) the the car runs into a tree. It's a little mud. Yeah, exactly. And and that's how Georgia Lorison became part of Hill House, Ryan.
0: (laughs) And that's how we realized that she was actually. Yeah and then, meant to stay in that house forever
1: yep and then russ tamblin goes like say we should uh put some salt on that car there make sure that uh, <laughs> sure. shields can't make any more movies anymore <laughs> you'll hear it later but i turned russ tamblin in the haunting into a dean martin <laughs> fucking weirdo <laughs> um, yeah but uh as you should. yeah as i should but anyway so yeah they go through this story and it's like uh we go back to <laughs> harry and he's just like and remember don't forget, he made your career. <laughs>
0: now she's a huge star. Yeah, like now she's a that. huge star, like
1: the like, like the Meryl Streep of her day, like all the Oscars and all the all the box office. And then we get to Bartlow. Bartlow, the writer. yeah, the writer who is a college professor at a southern university, and he is um rather content with himself. He doesn't want to suffer Hollywood. He's just fine. Um, right and he lives in the southern college town uh, with his southern southern aloof wife played by Gloria Graham this is Rosemary Bartlow Um, Mm -hmm. and he gets a call from Hollywood which is from Jonathan Shields who bought the rights to his first book the proud land which he says is a book about history that sold a lot because there's a lot of sex in it (laughs) Which you know, every history book that we ever read all had tons of sex in it. Like a bunch oh, of sex. every book about the American Revolution that we were given in public schools or any private schools is loaded with fucking raunchy material, man. Like
0: historical
1: sex. I remember. Do you? I mean, I, we all have our favorites. My favorite quote from one of my favorite textbooks was, "And then George Washington fucked Mary Washington the Brave." <laughs> <laughs>
0: he took out his took out his his dentures and then
1: he said the british are coming and so am i and that was the end and so of <laughs> am i at the same time <laughs> we
0: are like wow yeah. that's that's amazing
1: and my teacher said hey hey pay attention to the words and not the pictures. They'll be like, wow, why are these pictures even here, ma'am? This is real life. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is history. Yeah. This is were, history right now. I'm telling you, they were trying to make history come alive, Ryan, in the worst possible ways. Um, but anyway, Oh, oh and also, by the way, she's giving a symposia, um, in the living room, which is also filled right. with sex, according to, uh, Dick Powell, uh, James Lee Bartlow. Wow. Yeah. It's funny. I want to talk more about Dick Powell, but I want to wait for it until we talk about a, one of his noirs. But let's just say that he was one of the primary actors who played uh, one of the first actors to play Philip Marlowe on screen. Um, oh, right. Yeah. And he moved from a leading from a kind of a leading man kind of young guy look to a tough guy aesthetic, which he kind of got. He ended up getting that persona. By default, after Double Indemnity, which he went for but lost to McMurray. Um yeah. but he ends up being de- Philip Marlowe in Murder My Sweet and RKO, and then he starts moving through the ranks to films like these, and he ends up being a director. Um, he has kind of this larger legacy. Unfortunately, he's kind of like the least utilized in this movie. Like he's sure. the least prominent. In a, yep. in a in within the four core people, but right. he is important in the respect that his story is the most tragic. He gets the mm-hmm. call to be brought out to Hollywood to adapt to, uh, just to hear ideas from Jonathan Shields. Bring your right. wife along, all expenses paid. He he's this kind of man who just wants to sit in his rocker with his portable typewriter and write his stories um like any hipster today yep. we just want <laughs> like anybody <laughs> yeah exactly this is all we want um short of a pbr he'd be he'd fit right in today he'd fit right in yep. um and he they go out to hollywood and he's kind of begrudged at this he doesn't want to be doing it and his wife is going like oh but hollywood is so magical and i love every right. minute an inch of it and gloria graham who <laughs> you would all know from it's a wonderful life they they, she's more into this they look outside of this bungalow that they've been introduced to and they see that they're living next to georgia lorison
0: georgia lorison yeah but we don't
1: action. yeah so that's the connecting thread from the previous story so that's how they're able to connect mm-hmm. the two shields and bartlow meet and sh- bartlow's not particularly impressed um right he's kind not of yet. like taken aback that they even had the trouble of uh bring like eventually he gets convinced like hey just stay out here and write the screenplay uh yep. they take the trouble to ship out his favorite r- rocking chair and portable typewriter and he's just mm-hmm. like like i'm flattered that you want me and begrudge that you got me <laughs> Yep. and he's just like i mean like, he basically in all in no uncertain terms at the beginning of this relationship he's just like i don't fucking like you like you <laughs> The I don't like
0: you. I don't really want to do this, but I'm gonna. But yeah. I'm gonna do it. Yeah, it's like he by, kind of convinces them.
1: But money and also my wife, and and my wife wants it. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of
0: my favorite exchanges. That little scene when when he brings him into his, when he shows him like that they got the typewriter and the rocking chair.
1: And it's from this kind of low angle at first. So he's popping. He, he, right. Again, that there's some that Citizen Kane illusion of just like let's, let's show a powerful man and that interaction he plays with, but. You're right. That is a wonderful moment about that kind of like dynamic. And this part of the film actually deals a lot with the writer, which anybody writing the script is going to have the most <laughs> sympathy towards. And then and deal with, yeah. he gives him the juiciest arc of the movie because he starts writing this script, but gets distracted of, at every consistent moment by his wife. Uh, Why? We find out that his wife had, um, when they were out to dinner the night before, had been dancing for hours with Gaucho because as with we Gaucho. all know, hey everybody loves Gaucho.
0: He's a ladies man.
1: He's just Gaucho's just so lovable. Like he can charm any southern belle, he can charm any northern dame, you know, he can do he who's the man who won't cop out when there's danger all about. Gaucho, you're damn right. Gaucho. Yeah, yep. exactly. And then you just hear Isaac Hayes going wacka to wacka. Um But um, there's actually this lovely scene when they're talking about how she danced with Gaucho that she's wondering, has Hollywood changed me? Like, like what is my, like, have I changed or -hmm. have you changed or have we both changed? And then they go in for this very passionate kiss, which is, it's, it's honestly like, it's very well shot. And what's more, the thing that I'll bring up in advance, Gloria Graham wins her, wins her Oscar for this movie. She does. Yeah. And, it's a performance that only has nine minutes of screen time.
0: <laughs> right, that's right. Great.
1: I both i I agree with it, but I have reservations on it because I feel like Lana Turner deserves this. Um, sure. Uh, but anyway, we'll get to that.
0: Was she nom- so She was nominated. For be- Lana Turner was nominated for best supporting that. like No, that she lead. wasn't even
1: nominated at all. She wasn't even nominated. Yeah. Oh, wow. I think if you're going to give that is any of the actors in this film an Oscar, it's actually Lana Turner because I think she's the one who's pulling out the most surprising win. This yeah, has exactly. to be a career award. Like you've worked so hard. Here's your Oscar kind of thing. Um, right. But, um, but anyway, they – like and she had been working in films like It's a Wonderful Life and Uh Crossfire, where she was nominated before, so this is another one where, you know, clearly people liked her enough to want to give her something. So mm-hmm. Jonathan's like, Well, I'm gonna take Bartlow away to my cabin in the woods, um, to write to finish we're writing the gonna, script. We're gonna
2: bust this out. Yeah. And we're gonna get, write the script. Get rid of dist-
1: get rid of distractions. You know Orson Welles comes in and goes like, I removed every distraction. I gave you every chance in the world. And what did you do? You want credit for Citizen Kane? And then I'm like, that's not how it fucking went. Uh- <laughs> um, <laughs> so maybe, actually, you know what? Maybe David Fincher did watch Mank. <laughs> like, maybe, maybe he made Mank and he was just like, you know what? I need to watch Bad and the Beautiful first and see how yeah. one provides this kind of story. Actually, I highly doubt he did. And although the black and white in this movie is pretty astounding like there's some beautiful it is, yeah. there's beautiful. beautiful lighting, beautiful camera movement, like everything's yeah. everything's at play here. So they bang out this script and meanwhile Jonathan has instructed Gaucho to show Mrs. Bartlow a good time. So Gaucho right. is He's going like, to
0: distract her. Yeah, exactly, like so she doesn't bother he,
1: Look, Gaucho, writer, Gaucho so everybody loves you. That's the fact. That's the fact. Everybody loves we you. We all know it. But I need you to put those powers of persuasion and charm to the test because I need you to go and squire a young woman about. And Gaucho's just like, you got it, baby. And You got it. <laughs> can do. Yeah, I'm on it, chief. And then they finish the script. They're on their way home. They stop off somewhere. They look at the paper. Jonathan, look. I think it's Jonathan or is it James that looks at the paper? One of the two. It's James. He, yeah. He at the, yeah. James looks at the paper and it says the words that I don't think anybody, on any of us wanted to hear. Gaucho crashes in plane.
0: Gaucho, yeah, dead in plane crash. Yeah,
1: yeah. Let me ask you, Ryan. We all knew where we were when Heath Ledger died. Where were you when Gaucho died?
0: Where were you when Gaucho's plane went down? Yeah. Where were you?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it, I mean, the only equivalent we have for it today is where were you when John Denver's plane crashed? And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I was. I, I, I was, Here we... I, I was a kid looking at it in the paper and hearing my mom cry. <laughs> like, like oh we, we're, very we're we're john denver fans in the house so like at, sure i am too so like now that i hear about that story in retrospect i go like i should have cried but i was a stupid kid i didn't know sunshine I didn't on, know. but the sunshines on my shoulders now so it's okay <laughs> 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 and they go to the plane crash site and we also see an 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 instance of hollywood fixing because they are asking the police for uh the press are asking the police for a statement and clearly somebody in there is altering the story about where gaucho was where gaucho was going because Mm -hmm. there was the the flight plans uh they're saying the flight plan had him going to the lake to meet with those two um as they finished writing the script but in fact he was on his way to anywhere but there right they tear up the flight plan and the, the the biggest illusion i got to this is like now in the last 20 years we've had a couple of movies that portray hollywood fixing <laughs> uh hollywood land is a good one but the 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 primo one that i've seen done where it addresses the absurdity of it is hail caesar by the coen brothers uh, right which um but hollywood land does it in an even more interesting way because it's trying to suss out an actual mystery. Whereas hail Caesars going broad to explain a concept to people. Um, right. But both right. basically address this whole idea of like how many stories were buried at this time. Um, mm-hmm. What's kind of amazing is that this is still in the studio era, even though Louis B. Mayer is out. Louis was known to use fixers. Like yeah. all across the place. Like Eddie Mannix was a fixer for them. And so, to have dory sherry at the head of mgm okaying this giving john hausman and vincent minnelli full permission to allude to that is interesting right so they go like there's there's a moment of concili of consoling and this is when bartlow and shield start to grow together um Mm -hmm. we then get the the jo, Bartlow, as he's working on the script and then eventually consulting on the casting, he suggests, "Well, why don't we have, you know, Georgia Lorison play the role?" And then the world stops because they're just like, "You just said the, you know, the unmentionable name." <laughs> like, he's you like, said, well. you said, you said 1950s Voldemort, like that. That <laughs> they do not, they they are not into this idea. But Jonathan's like, "Look, she hates my guts. It's not going to happen." <laughs> Leaves and then opens the door and goes. I can't work. With yeah, but it's like, but if you were to give her the script, I wouldn't stop you.
0: <laughs> just at the door. We should mention. We should mention. I don't know that James's writer, his wife Gloria, she died mm-hmm. in the yes, plane she oh, was yes. in the plane with Gowjo. Yeah,
1: that's the thing. Rosemary dies. Yes, we did not Rosemary, make, yeah. that, that was my bad. Yeah, Rosemary dies. So that's why
0: she was hanging with him. Yeah, exactly. Went on that flight with him, And they, so they both died in this
1: plane. Yeah. And, and by the way, also to mention that Jonathan has been trying to convince James this whole time that she holds him back.
0: She's distracting him and she, he needs to kind of get rid of her,
1: which if you recall, this is not too dissimilar from the same line of thinking that he has throughout the movie about other people are trying to get in the way of his success or, or stopping him on his train to success. Like he is like cutting people at the tendons to be at the top. What's funny is that at this point he is already at the top or a form of it. And so now Mm -hmm. he's just like, he's literally just like shooting himself in the foot every which way, but loose, which is similar to Selznick because Selznick had this problem. Selznick Mm -hmm. was a huge success he would keep making productions so overtly long and overly detailed and overly complicated that he wasn't cranking out at the same rate as the other studios, he was putting Red. out. He put out a f- tiny fraction of the amount of pictures that Paramount, Warner Brothers, MGM put out in any given year. So, the fact that, the fact that they are alluding to Selznick, if it's even if it's not meant to be the exact Selznick story. Mm-hmm. It's hitting on a lot of very familiar beats to where I'm like, how can this not be Silsnick? It has to be. And Yeah,
0: no, it definitely is, for sure. It's gotta
1: be. Yeah. I mean, like, you can throw in any mm-hmm. of the but it's a convlu it's a convolution, kinda like how Hearst, Kane, etc. Right. Um But so anyway, they do convince Georgia to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. They clearly convince Fred to work on this thing <laughs> or to be involved right. somehow in some capacity. And then we get this scene with the Leo G. Carroll director who basically in a Hitchcock type fashion is talking about how to direct a movie. So we have the director of this big Epic movie teaching, um, how to direct a movie and what's more, um, Oh wait, no, they don't get Fred to do it. Fred is just working on another project with her and that's how they convince her. Yeah. So Fred's not involved in the production, but, so this other director is talking to Jonathan Shields about like every scene can't be a climax. Mm-hmm. There's got to be buildup and slow buildup. And Shields is arguing with him. Selznick did this a lot. Selznick was going for this bigger picture, grander scale. Like every moment needs to be important when in fact, in right. most movies, not every moment needs to be important. When you look yeah. at something like Rebecca, the reason why it feels more unique then Gone with the Wind is because Hitchcock is at the helm. Mm -hmm. Even though Selznick's thumbprint is all over Rebecca, there's enough of Hitchcock in there to make it stand out because not every scene is a true climax. There are subtler moments. Whereas if you watch Gone with the Wind, every scene is important because every (laughs) scene is means something. And my God, the movies over and that, that, that's the kind of detriment to Selznick for how masterful he was with something like Gone with the Wind, which I'll fully admit, I understand why people watch that movie from a technical, technical acumen and everything. He, his attention to detail was both a blessing and a curse. And right. this is where we see how he would always kind of like basically shadow direct his movies, unless it was Hitchcock. Hitchcock was the one director who was like, no, 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 you don't do that to me. if you don't want to work with me you can loan me out to other places where I can work with like Cary Grant and you know fucking Tallulah Bankhead and all those cool fucking neat people and then you know if you get Bergman then we'll talk but until then shut the fuck up and (laughs) and Selznick was like whatever I'm just gonna loan you out and (laughs) then uh, so he Jonathan says like well then I'm just gonna direct and
0: right takes over
1: takes over and the director. Points, By the way,
0: that scene with him and Leo G. Carroll, like that yeah. the exchange they have when he tells him, he's like, "What does he say?" He a says, director um, has humility. Yeah, to direct mm-hmm. a picture, you have to have humility. Mm-hmm. Do you have humility, Mister. She- like that yeah. bit is so good. I love yeah, part. which
1: is a very like actually, I th- I think it's a very telling. It's a telling phrase that carries on to time because any director we've learned about within the last twenty years of our lives we've learned about the difficult ones and we learn what kind of films they make. (laughs) Right. Like, I mean, you know, there are directors who, because they don't have that humility and they are on that power trip, they don't get it. Producer directors have the same problem. This is a more prominent issue then, Mm -hmm. not now producer directors. The most prominent one I know of off the top of my head is Clint Eastwood, who like actively puts that in his credits. And Clint's not Clint for how difficult he is as a person. Clint is not difficult as a director from all reports. Right. So he's like the exception to this rule. Um, but he directs the film and apparently everybody loves yeah. him. Everybody loves him to the point where it's a detriment to him <laughs> because the film is terribly directed. Everything else looks great, but the film is terribly directed. <laughs> and, and he, yeah, start, st- Props to Jonathan Shields for how much of an asshole he's been in this movie. He is so self-aware that the that he is the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is how we learn that the studio is basically bankrupt to the point where Harry and Sid have been putting their own money into the production. Yep. To keep it afloat because the money men over, over in the East Coast are done with it. The bank is done with this. Yep. Um, because a lot of how the studios functioned in this era, the studio operated on the West Coast. They could film away from the monopolies initially of the Edison Company. The Money Men were on the East Coast. So like Harry Warner and Albert Warner would be on the East Coast, and Jack Warner and Sam Warner were on the West Coast. So that's how that worked. You have um, uh, Nicholas Skank and, and eventually the other Skank brother who were the money men in MGM telling Louis B. Mayer what to do. So that's how the back and forth worked for these studios. Cause none of the studios had their own capital on the coast. So these money men are fed up with it. They're done. They're done. They've, they've cut him off completely. Won't give him the completion fund. He wants to shelve the film. They say, no, we need product yep. out there. And he goes like, I'm not putting out a picture if it's bad. Yep which (laughs) drama queen
0: he's like i don't care everybody's like like, dude the writers like do my wife died like come on
1: yeah exactly and well yeah we'll get to that because bartlow feels bad for jonathan and suggests you come out to the lake we'll go on a vacation and jonathan gets out of his funk for like says like give me five minutes to pack he starts spouting off his mouth, and as he starts spouting off his mouth, he talks about how he told Gaucho not to take that plane ride and then stops mm-hmm. himself. So it's almost the ghost of Gaucho. is like, look, I've got to make sure that people know that I did a terrible, terrible thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I'll inhabit the ghost of Jonathan for a minute to have him reveal mm-hmm. shit, and then I'll just leave because Gaucho can do that I whenever, can do whenever he whenever wants. I want. Gaucho ghost. Um, Gaucho Ghost and Hitch Ghost this Wednesday on CBS, <laughs> and I'd watch it. The yeah, oh, that would be a great, stupid sitcom. <laughs> Again, <laughs> the last last thirteen episodes, but they're bottle episodes, so continuity doesn't matter. Yes. And um, but anyway, the uh uh, um the reveal happens, and Bartlow punches the shit right. out of Jonathan, which rightfully so and then we get to we cut back out to it uh, and harry Rebel go, pebble goes like now 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 if jonathan hadn't had your wife accidentally <laughs> killed you wouldn't have written your second novel which then gave him uh, which then gave you the pulitzer prize pulitzer. and then so he so so he looks at all three of these people ryan and he goes like so what do you say when you make the movie he's like they,
0: he's like no come on yeah
1: i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you ryan even though we've learned about the positive traits of jonathan seals if they had said anything other than no i would have been frustrated <laughs> Yeah, because they flat out tell them no like i appreciate the honest answers it's like no we're not we're like for no. a toxic douchebag what are you talking about mm-hmm. that's like fucking like it, it, I almost kind of want not James because James is just like I gave my answer. George is just like, well, I'm an actress. I'm just gonna underplay this scene. I want Fred to be like, are you fucking high, Pebble? Are you fucking <laughs> kidding me? After did you hear what you just said? Hear what I said, then hear what you said back, and you still ask that question? Go fuck right. yourself. <laughs> so then he they get up to leave, and he gets the phone call from Shields shields and shields and he tells shields like Not no happening. no no they said Not no they said no but as they leave the room ryan what does georgia do she picks up that it's goddamn phone, phone.
0: <laughs> she listens in listens what, what are they talking about and then they all they all crowd around the phone
1: they get more and more interested say, well, let's hear
0: like, what like, let's hear what he has to say let's hear what, they're, what he's talking about
1: now, now the phrase that permeated that discussion prior to them leaving was like, you've got to give the devil his yep. due. There's two ways you can look at this. It's one, even though Jonathan Shields is a huge douchebag, he's so creative and so talented and so charismatic that they are drawn to at least hear what his idea is. They're not committed, but they hear what his idea is. The other instances is that Vincent Minnelli made a secret horror movie where these people are drawn straight into hell.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of both, but I think there's also something. Yeah, you know, because what Pebbles telling them is like, you know, they all kind of did some of their best work, you know, with him, and and he sort of they're each individual stories with him. He kind of watches their careers, you know, like he's he's a creative producer for them and he sort yeah. of inspires them i think creatively and i think they all know that and even though he's problematic and they have their own betrayals with him i think there is that there yeah. there's that addiction they're sort of like well but he's pretty he is kind of a genius in that you know it's been a while and we are seeing like I, it would be kind of as probably a sick project like we should see what's going on like they kind of want to like hear yeah, what he's ex- got
1: yeah and exactly, and so here herein lies like we have been making fun of this movie and pointing out how a lot of this has this problematic connotation in right. it, and you know it's it's always good to point these out when you're watching a movie of this era for anybody who has those reservations about watching a film. I obviously will recommend that you watch this film. I think this is like above and beyond any melodrama that you're gonna see of the era unless it's Douglas Sirk doing right. it um, but this film is interesting because addresses the, we're not going to get into the full discussion on it. Cause we'd be here all night, right. but the full discussion when it comes to like appreciating the art versus the mm-hmm. artist and this movie's ending literally asks you where you stand on that line. So it, in a sense, this is a melodrama that 70 years later has become a challenging. And sure. Yeah. <laughs> very true. Like, so it took 70 years to become that. Um So it's like, it's a very curious oddity to see, A problem that we've been wrestling with with learning the extent beyond just basic knowledge of how power in Hollywood has been corrupted like like throughout the decades Mm and like near century that we've been dealing with where nothing really changed after the studio era happened that. You know, a lot of reckoning has happened and a lot of people have had to, in their own way, suss out what their comfort level is with with art by problematic artists. Right. This is a movie literally about that. Like, but just nobody even predicted the fallout we'd be having at this time. Yeah, Um, it
0: seemed like at the time it was more about, specifically just more about, oh, you know, here are these kind of problematic producers who are manipulative and will kind of... Will kind of fuck with people and mess with people in order to like get get a project made or like get them to kind of do something. And it, it, maybe the means, maybe the ends are there, but the means are kind of a little gray or you know, in this case like pretty gray. But yeah. then yeah, you take that further compared to like the stuff that we hear about now, and it's like
1: yeah. it's
0: even darker <laughs> to look at it through that lens, yeah, you know. It-
1: it's interesting. Minnelli's created an art, a piece of art that does last the test of time. In that I know, respect, it is, it's really timeless. And,
0: I think.
1: Yeah, and it's and it's interesting how this movie isn't as celebrated as right. his other works because it's easy to look at an American in Paris and um, uh, and Gigi mm-hmm. and look at them with their Oscar pedigree or Meet Me in St. Louis, which. I mean Meet Me in St. Louis is a classic. Yeah. It's not a musical I go back to, but cuz I prefer to like I prefer a darker musical when I'm going for it, but movie musicals of that era I do like. Meet Me in St. Louis is one that you can watch and enjoy. The 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 beauty of The Bad and the Beautiful is how far it's willing to stretch its legs at the time it's being made. Mm-hmm while pointing to timeless ideas that even the filmmakers don't seem to be fully aware of until they're long gone. Yep. And now we have only our ability to watch the film as the evidence of like, wow, this is eerie how much this has become relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. And the film, the film was, uh, uh, the film was released and it earned two million three hundred sixty-seven dollars at the U S box office a million and six thousand elsewhere. And it got a profit of four hundred eighty-four hundred thousand dollars at a time when the studios are now starting to battle television. So the movie still did very well. Not, not probably unreasonably due to the, to the popularity of both Lana Turner and Kirk Douglas. Right. Um, and then from a contemporary standpoint, uh, the, 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 the reviews on this I've had a hard time finding, but like today we have a seventy nine percent Rotten Tomatoes rating on this. Film. Right. the The consensus is that melodrama at its most confident, the bad and the beautiful, is an ode to movie making that offers unblinking insight into the ugly egos that have shaped Hollywood history. So it's very much alluding to what we've discussed right. um, throughout the process of this film. And what's more, there is something from the New York New York State writers Institute from all um, you can find this on albany.edu it's from the State University of New York did, somebody did an analysis of this for Penn State University and at the end he has this paragraph that I wanted to say this is like the closest that you can get to this is Minnelli never lost the sense of abstraction and solitude he first found upon his arrival in 1940 though his sets were always a marvelous war of activity in his films among the highest achievements of Hollywood as a collaborative process Though I was fascinated by the work at the studio, I had trouble becoming acclimated to the town itself. I'd made several friends, but I still felt isolated. Mm -hmm. It was a strange brand of loneliness, relentless and unrelieved. I'd leave the studio at dusk and look at the flatlands around me. In the distance stood a solitary oil well. I found the lonely silhouette rising out of the ground quite symbolic. I I sensed this indifference about the town... So many of us were alone in a crowd of impassive faces. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: what Minnelli said about Hollywood.
1: Yeah. So he clearly did not have the same level of magistry around Hollywood that even a lot of us today do. It's, I mean, certainly true with me. Like I still find a glow about Hollywood, Um, but there's a paragraph before it of just like, there's a sentence before that kicks it off. Uh, in the bad and the beautiful Vincent Minnelli joyfully announced that he had found opera in a sausage factory <laughs> which is very that's the more humorous version of this but long story short like this is a movie that has clearly uh, instigated a lot of tropes when it comes to insider baseball movies where you talk about the industry film mm-hmm. production itself you you cannot look at Hollywood today and not find some form of this being done in order to, yeah, in order to get Oscars, in order to get awards attention outside of a world dominated by IP and superheroes, which is not to down on them, it's just that's the reality guys. So there is kind of like a pseudo sequel to this film called Two Weeks in Another Town, which is a film that I have Mm -hmm. seen. I did not see The Bad and the Beautiful until you recommended it to me um, for this show. Um, But Two Weeks in Another Town is by Vince Minnelli Mm -hmm. as well deals with filming a romantic costume drama in Rome. And the film, one of the films that they watch for reference, the Kirk Douglas character mentions being an actor in that yeah. movie. And it's a film from the bad, in the, the film, the bad. Right. The beautiful. It's, so <laughs> it's, it's a weird, <laughs> it's a weird meta trip. And I find it. I, I didn't realize it was a meta trip until watching bad and the beautiful. And now I'm like, Oh my God, that this is so interesting. This is like a weird duology. Um, but you should watch Two Weeks in Another Town. And actually, maybe I'll bring it back on, and we'll talk about Two Weeks in Another George. Town because that's a. If you have you seen see that one yet, out. or it's a it's yeah. a good follow up. It's not the same. Um, and it was kind of seen as a flop of its era, but it's definitely an interesting film. It's got Sid Sid Charisse in it, George Hamilton. So it's kind of like the years later yeah. version because it's done in 1962 under different circumstances, but. Manelli, Hausman, and Schnee. Schnee all collaborating Schnee. once again. Yep, yep. He brought, he brought Peter Pan magic back again. Um, and uh, as far as the legacy of the Bad and the Beautiful, really, one of the biggest things is that the theme song for the Bad and the Beautiful, Love is for the Very Young was the original title but now it's just called the Bad and the Beautiful, uh, has become a very big jazz standard. And it's like widely covered. Um, the the, the the film itself picked up a lot in the Oscars apart from Best Picture. The nominees were Best Actor Kirk, Kirk Douglas, Best Supporting Actress Gloria Graham, Best Screenplay Charlie Schnee, uh, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography Black and White, Best Costume Design Black and White. When they still had the division in the um, categories, the only one that didn't win was Kirk Douglas for yeah. Best Actor. Because as we all know, Kirk Douglas wasn't going to get an Oscar that yeah. easy. He'd almost have to, I don't know, save Dalton Trumbo's career from, from, I don't know, people who just were stupid and tried to blame everything on communism instead of looking inward. Anyway, (laughs) uh, the DGA did honor a nomination over to Vincent Minnelli. Um, It seems like it's one of the few real nominations that Vincent Minnelli gets. The other one being the Golden Lion nomination for the Venice International Film Festival. So... I will say, like, when we talk about where we see this film today, Ryan, I think we've talked a little bit about it over the course of the subject, but Mank has been the most recent example of telling a true Hollywood story or a story about old Hollywood in particular. But we have showbiz parodies. We have showbiz, like, poke fun at all the time. Like, this has become a self-reflexive tool of Hollywood, but... I was gonna ask, like, is there anything you've you saw when you first saw The Bad and the Beautiful that you connected it to on a modern level?
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we kind of talked about it, like definitely like the you know, just kind of the problematic elements of the way that the film you know, operates sometimes and the personalities there, you know. But another thing that I felt about when I was watching it or what especially you know watching it again is even though it is kind of like a cynical movie and it has kind of these things about it i I also i still find it like weirdly like it does have this like magic to it and there is this like kind of love letter to filmmaking element it's kind of like it's like look how cool filmmaking is like even though like it has its ups and downs you have to deal with personalities and stress your shit like it's kind of all like worth it right like it kind of has like yeah. Into it, at least that i so i don't i don't see it totally as like a cynical piece about hollywood completely i mean there is that element to it but it's also it shows the other side of it which is like but it's also kind of a magical thing and like there's cool yeah it's done I, and
1: i absolutely agree with that i was gonna I, I didn't want to interject but i was gonna say I, that's absolutely correct because this film does not this film when i when i when we say when we, when i was saying cynical throughout the entirety of the piece i meant more in the sense of like it's just it's uncommon to see it in films right. like this of this era that gleam of movie magic is still there and i would argue that <laughs> this is going to sound like the most like trite example but the muppet movie is all about the joy of making right. a movie at the end of the day <laughs> um or <laughs> or specifically you know like i mean you know, anytime you see a movie about making a movie or making that dream come true kind of thing, like, yes, you can find that sheen and that glow in a movie like the bad and the beautiful, which also shows the down and downward slope. Um, It's what it's interesting is that Minnelli is really good with human interaction. And I think humans at their core have a dream, have a dream thought process about them that we all experience and movie making a movie about making movies seems to be a good conduit for filmmakers to talk about fulfilling your right. dreams. Like it's a, it's a conduit that we see throughout of it. Like, I mean, like again, another weird example, but Zach and Mary make a porno literally is about that. <laughs> it like ends up becoming about that. It starts off as one thing and then halfway through it decides to become an entirely different right. thing. <laughs> that is kind of great. And, uh, anytime that you watch, um, a cynical showbiz movie you get this yeah you you will get shades of the bad and the beautiful but you will also get that sheen of how fun it is to make a movie or how fun it is to love movies you know like i mean there's i think like one of the biggest legacies of the bad and the beautiful is is that it's one of the first hollywood films to be honest Mm -hmm about the reality of Hollywood's history right. itself, talking about these figures of the past who ran these studios and were monsters, but put out all these amazing products. is just right. like, I think the bad and the beautiful is, is ultimately about the conundrum of Hollywood itself. Yeah. And also I would argue that it's enhanced the legacy of Gaucho, which we're all familiar with Gaucho's legacy. We all know, uh, we all say prayers to Gaucho at evenings, at evening times now, because the bad okay. and the beautiful keeps Gaucho's legacy cool. alive. <laughs> yeah. Yes. RIP Gaucho forever, mm-hmm. you know, oh. always. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, Ryan, thank you for chatting with me for three hours on a Vincent Manelli. Yeah, man. Sure. <laughs> um, Let's do it, man. uh, really quickly uh, repeat, repeat for people where they can find uh, your lovely work and film.
0: Um, you can find, if you just Google my name, uh, Ryan Francis Johnson, um, It should Mm -hmm. my website will come up, and then also Vimeo, under that name Ryan Francis Johnson, um, will have you know my films and latest things up on there, so you can check it out there.
1: And do you have anything coming up within uh, within the year that people will want to be on the lookout for?
0: Um, I don't have anything that's like post necessarily. I yeah, my last film, Nice Car, we have was the last thing I put out. But that might be I'll sort of put that out pump some point so I guess a, yeah short film such a nice car we have you might see a bun a bun soonish um and then yeah I'm kind of just like writing a few different things so once I have uh you know some solidified uh luggage
1: well in the meantime well, in the meantime, we'll go ahead and schedule it now. We'll have you we'll have you back at least. We'll have you back for many more, I'm sure, because I want to get you more on mic. I actually want to get you and Strelik together in the room to do a sequel <laughs> so event. Um, but definitely, hands down, we need you back for two weeks in another town because we need to talk about the, the sequel se- slash, non, the, slash non-sequel. Charles Schnee's slash- <laughs> master. Yeah, the sh- yeah, the, the Minnelli-Hausman-Schneed duology that <laughs> everybody loves so much. But thank you once again, Ryan, for doing this. This is going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Valley Who Review. You can find out more about us in the tag at the end of the episode. On our next episode, we will be going into another territory I like to call Zach won't shut up about Jack Benny because we are going to be talking about the good one, the Lubitch one, Uh, And we will be bringing back Ryan Frost as we discussed Ernst Lubitsch's To Be or Not to Be. Uh, But until next time, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.